Well, welcome back to part two of why are men obsessed with the Roman Empire? In fact, we corrected this trend. I, I, wanted, I want us to take personal responsibility and um, all of the credit, really, for, for perfecting this trend in the way it should have been, which is to say men are obsessed with Rome, not just the Roman Empire. And we proved this. And the way we proved it was we dedicated a whole episode to this idea of why are men obsessed with the Roman Empire and took an entire episode of two and a half hours and only got to the Re only got through the Republic. And so that's the point where we said, all right, look, we're going to have to stop right now and we're going to have to have a second episode where we talk about the Roman Empire, specifically the fall of the Roman Empire. And what we're going to do today is actually draw parallels. So the first parallels we made were toward the fall of the Roman Republic and the current status of the American Republic. Today, what we're going to look at is all the various things that happened during the course of the Roman Empire, specifically the Western Roman Empire. For those of you who are going to look at me and be like, "Oh, so you plan to go all the way to the uh, plan to go all the way into the uh, 1500s, huh, Nick?" No, no, we're gonna we're gonna stop with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. I apologize to everyone out there that loves you know Byzantium, but. We, maybe we'll do that as a third episode some other time. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the status of the United States right now, um, what it looks like for us economically, socially, culturally, internationally, militarily, and we're also going to take a look at the Roman Empire to once again explain to anyone out there confused on why men are so obsessed with the Roman Empire. By the way, I need to say why men and some women too. We've had quite yep. a few women in our chat say, hey, wait a second, I'm also obsessed with Rome and probably married because that's an absolute wonderful trait that so many men are looking for right now is a woman obsessed with the Roman Empire. So we're going to talk about all of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument Powered by Good Ranchers. Thank you everyone for joining us on this episode and thank you to everyone who submitted questions for this episode in our community chat. If you would like to join, you can go down to the link in the description, get to know us there and we'd love to see you. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now. But other than that, a reasonably good guy. <laughs> what was oh, I, I, that? I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And then and I don't want to presume. I don't want to presume. Now, not with us today is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, because as she's told me on several occasions, she is not personally obsessed with the Roman Empire. But whenever we get to like classical Victorian era, she is she is down and she has guests to bring on. But Queen of the Bees will not be here today, but our resident historian, our political prognosticator, and our mostly benevolent warlord in training, <laughs> Christian Hines, is here and is so excited about this episode. I'm, I'm so excited. I've got my Roman shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> um, there once was a dream. Yeah. <laughs> a dream that was Rome. This is going to be a, a bittersweet episode in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of is. Kind of is. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Let's go. All right. So let's jump into this. First things first, let's do a recap because one of the things we do like to do when we do a part one and a part two is make sure that we do enough relevance for the previous episode so that if you're looking at this one for the first time, you don't need to stop everything and go watch the first episode, right? Although we would highly recommend we that would. you do that at some point. So what we talked about in the first episode, we, we talked about the founding of Rome all the way up to the fall of the Republic. And what we did there was explain, again, that interest associated with the United States and being a great world power and, and the trends that we see happening within American culture, within the American economy right now, and the trends that we see happening within the Roman Republic. And the reason why we thought that was so important is because the United States is not, I would argue, the United States is not an empire in the sense that the Roman Empire was. We're, we're a lot more close to what the Roman Republic was. Now, that doesn't mean there's an exact one-for-one -one exchange. Here. There's a ton of differences that, that we could dedicate an entire episode to. But 
Rome in its Republican days had some form of, you know, representative government. There was still this idea that they didn't want the centralization of power in the hands of one person that was essentially going to manage the, the Roman nation, if you will. Um, and then obviously over time, what you saw is through a combination of very factors. We talk about the Gracchi brothers. We talked about there being legitimate concerns and legitimate problems with the way that the Roman economy was being run and the way that the Roman legal system was being run. And that what that led to was, let's say, inappropriate corrections. So even though we, we might be able to say, yeah, hey, the Gracchi brothers had a point, the problem was is they introduced a lot of mob violence into trying to achieve their end states. Um, we could look at the Marian reforms with respect to the military. We could say, yeah, you know what? It, it made sense to allow people that weren't necessarily independently wealthy or middle-class to be able to join the military as a mechanism of both providing necessary troops and providing people a mechanism to become Roman citizens or to raise up the social and economic ranks for people that previously really had very little mechanism to do so. You can look at Sulla and, and, his use of the Roman military to try to restore what he thought he was doing was restoring the Republic and removing some of these bad precedents that had been taking place over time, this corruption that had been taking place over time in order to prevent that centralization of power. And what we see is that in each one of these things that they did, it set a precedent that was incredibly hard to then turn back the clock. And that of course led to Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. You have the civil war, but largely between uh, Pompey and Pompey's generals and allies against Caesar, Antony and his allies, which eventually ended up with Pompey being murdered in, in Egypt. Uh, it led to Caesar almost getting to the point where he was about to take probably the closest you could come to, to absolute power that anyone had uh, in Rome since the early days of, of the Roman kingdom. And then all of a sudden he's murdered, which throws Rome into a whole nother civil war. And that's where you get the, the split between you. The, the two major players were Octavian, which was which Julius Caesar had made Octavian his official heir. Um, and then Mark Antony, who had been one of Caesar's most trusted generals throughout all of his time, uh, all the way up through him crossing the Rubicon, the civil wars and et cetera. And then you see this split where Antony is, is controlling a portion of the major, a major portion of the empire from Egypt and Alexandria. Um, and then Octavian, it, it, uh, a will is released. This is an important part of information. A uh, Mark Antony's will is released. And in his will, whether it was the actual thing or whether it was forged or whatever it was, he requested to be born or excuse me, he requested to be buried in Alexandria as opposed to Rome. Now this wasn't, the only thing that had happened to cause this, this friction between Octavian and Antony, there'd been a lot, but this was this catalyst to now move it into open warfare between Octavian and Mark Antony. Mark Antony would eventually uh, lose at the battle of Actium at the battle of Actium is a naval battle um, where uh, Agrippa, who was a, a close ally of Octavian and a, and a very capable um, admiral, essentially defeated Antony. Antony was later, um, had his legions kind of abandoned him in Egypt. He ended up committing suicide. And at this point, Octavian is, a, is, is essentially left as the sole ruling entity at the kind of the executive level of power within Rome. So that's where we're going to start this episode is talking about, okay, what happens now with Octavian and his consolidation of power and how that affects his thing. So I think that was a pretty good setup, Christian. Yeah. And All right. For starters, Octavian uh, becomes Augustus. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, Hamilton. We actually have a couple links up here that, um, that we want to show the audience. This first one for um, I'll, I'll try to walk this through for the, the audio listeners who don't get to see this. 
Um, the first one is a resource that's a, a pretty great resource. It's it's a map series that shows the evolution of the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire, and then eventually the two divided empires, and finally just the the Eastern Byzantine Empire. Um, so this is like 1,500 years of history, and this shows the state of the empire in 9 AD. Um, there was something really important that happened around this time period, a certain battle that took place in Germany. Um, <laughs> where are you talking about Thunberg? Or? Yeah, where the yeah. the Romans get wiped out, and uh, Augustus, you know, screams, "Give me back my legions!" Yeah. Um, so this is the aborted attempt to take Germany. This is shortly after um, Augustus consolidates power. So I just wanted to to tell our audience about this because this is a neat resource that we'll probably include in the show notes. And then after this is um, some links on the crossing of the Rubicon and the War of Actium. Uh, so Hamilton, our third link that we've got here. Uh, this was what Nick was talking about with uh, Julius Caesar's his point of no return. We got to this at the very end of last episode. Yeah. Um, Hamilton, you could actually probably just uh, X out of this since we covered it. And then uh, finally, the War of Actium. So um, this is a very famous battle. It was a naval battle, actually, yeah. which is quite rare. The Romans were not known for... Well, and, and Antony was had no real naval prowess whatsoever. The only reason that, that Antony decided... If Antony had fought this battle on land, he probably would have had a, a much better chance. But because of the his Egyptian allies, he just he, he saw himself as having overwhelming... Um, naval advantage uh with respect to, to numbers and so he he thought he could win and and agrippa just handed him his lunch and uh, cleopatra was actually present at the battle and as the battle started to go poorly she actually fled <laughs> in her flagship and antony fled the battle as well which was not characteristic of mark Ant mark antony one of the reasons why mark antony was kind of a horrible politician he was a horrible administrator but one of the reasons why he was a formidable general is because he was incredibly aggressive and he shared the hardships and the outcomes with his men and so his his legionaries like respected antony for that reason and when he fled this battle it was a massive hit to his reputation and then they both uh, committed suicide shortly after. Yeah. And that's when Egypt becomes a Roman province because when Antony succeeds, that actually also marks the end, um, fun fact, of the final Diadochi kingdom. Uh, the last the last uh, successor state to Alexander's empire uh, falls at this point when Egypt, yeah. which is ruled by the Ptolemies up until then, yeah. descendants of one of Alexander's generals. When yeah, they, whatever Netflix tells you, yeah, Cleopatra was Macedonian, but anyway. Yeah, um, Cleopatra's literally a Greek name. But yeah, um, yeah so the War of Actium literally marks the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire. And the Empire is ruled under Octavian, who's uh, Caesar's nephew, who Caesar, as you said, uh, named as his heir. And then he becomes proclaimed Augustus by the Roman Senate. Yeah. And, the and that... That marks the end of the crisis period. The civil wars come to an end finally, and the Republic becomes an empire. But what's interesting, and and we'll talk about this throughout the course of this episode, what's interesting is that it, it, for a while, the pretense of the, of it still being a Republic is carried on. Yes. Augustus, does, he he basically says, you know, that, that he's, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically says that he's, he's the first citizen. He's not, he, he's, he's not your king. Well, they refer to it as the principate. Mm -hmm. It, it, yeah, it, it, there was, there was, it was very, it was considered very, very important culturally within Rome at this time, even though he was essentially wielding, um, I mean, maybe not absolute executive power, but again, the closest Rome had ever experienced, except for like minor times when they had elected a dictator for a short period of time. We talked about that with things like Cincinnatus, where they took, they took massive power in order to deal with the problem. And then they voluntarily handed it back over. Well, now we're talking about a situation where that same sort of power is, is, held, but it's not being handed back over. 
And this, this opens up a whole new line of questions with respect to things like succession, because before that had succession had been an issue, had elections for consuls. Well, well now you're in a situation with the principate that they're still trying to give the impression that yeah, yeah, Rome has no King, but in all effects, it, it essentially has a King at this point. And so the Roman empire kind of uh, kicks itself off in many ways, actually on a good foot because Although uh, Augustus, you know, kind of, you know, he, he puts an end to the Republic, Rome probably could not have asked for a, for a better, a better man to, to, to lead. If they were going to have a strong man, yeah. Rome probably, you know, could have done a lot worse than somebody like Augustus. Augustus is, I mean, even if you don't know much about the Roman empire, um, you've probably heard of Augustus. He's, he's, I mean, he's up there with some of the most important people ever. Um, he's up there with Julius Caesar. He's up there with Alexander the Great. And one of the things that um, Augustus kind of tries to pull off early on is this conquest of Germania, which failed. He succeeded in many other places, but that was his biggest failure. He could not he could not conquer Germany. And so this established effectively permanently Rome's borders along the Rhine River and the Danube River, with some exceptions. Dacia eventually gets conquered by Trajan and stuff like that. But um, this is actually really important for the future, especially the, when we get to the end of this episode, just remember that Germany is separate from the Roman empire. Like, cause that will become very, very relevant eventually. Um, but w- again, with the exception of that defeat in Germany, Augustus was a, a pretty decent ruler. Yeah. Um, like I said, he, he annexed Egypt. He managed to, um, consolidate, um, uh, Rome's eastern border with Parthia, which was really their their chief rival, even more so than the Germanic tribes, because Germany was a divided confederation. It wasn't a unified nation state. Persia, the Parthians were. They, they were a proper empire in their own right. And as Crassus could attest, they could they could easily defeat the Romans in battle. So um, Augustus kickstarts what we call the, the Pax Romana. It really picks up when you get to the five good emperors, but he kickstarts with a 200-year period of relative peace and prosperity. Again, there's still sporadic yeah. wars with Parthia. They're still fighting with the Germans, but R- Rome is really at its peak as a civilization during this time period. Yeah. Well, and, and you see, like you, you have various people that argue on when does the Pax Romana actually start? Because obviously nobody really considers the the <laughs> the reigns of Caligula or Nero as being especially good within that particular time frame. But and, and a lot of people started off in like the, you know, I think it's like the 70s BC and then it goes on to like 192 um, or excuse me, 70s uh, AD and then 192 AD, which if, if you think about it, that's that's a massive amount of time for a a civilization to be living in what you might call relative peace. Now, keep in mind, <laughs> that doesn't mean there was no wars during this time. What it means is, is that there was no real significant um, threats to the Roman Empire. Like, and, and by that, I don't mean that there weren't people that could pick off outside provinces or win a battle against Rome. It's just that there, there was nothing that really question the overall dominance, like in the Mediterranean uh, or within, within Rome at this point. So they were incredibly wealthy. They were getting wealthier. Uh, the, the legions were at, at the height of their power um, and their logistical systems were just in, incredible. Their trade networks were, were, were powerful and they weren't going through any like major civil wars. Um, again, now <laughs> let, let's keep this in perspective. So you had Augustus, Augustus reigns for 40 years. And again, Rome, Rome, I mean, you have the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest, which is one of the one of the major defeats of, of a Roman army in Roman history. But 
nobody was worried about, and then the Germans are going to come sack Rome, right? That wasn't, the, it was, oh crap, now we had to send more legions to teach them a lesson, right? So it, it would be kind of like the United States pulling out of like um, Afghanistan, for instance. Okay, we, yeah, we pulled out of Afghanistan. You could say that that was a defeat. However, we inflicted more casualties. Again, I'm not, just hear me out, right? We inflicted more casualties. We won every single major battle, the whole deal, but we're leaving and the Taliban's in charge. No one's worried about the Taliban then being like, all right, now let's get in our boats and invade the United States. Like no one's worried about that. So think of it kind of like in, in that perspective with American military dominance, it doesn't mean we can't have losses. It doesn't mean we don't withdraw some from certain points that we've been engaged in militarily, but we're just not worried about anyone actually threatening us on an existential level. Then you had Tiberius. Um, again, Tiberius had some issues. Then you get into like Caligula. Oh, there's something really important that happens around the time of Tiberius. Okay, go ahead. In Judea. Oh gosh. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So obviously yeah. there's, there's this guy that shows up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does some important things. They wrote some books about it. <laughs> well, and, and, and well, Okay, we'll, we'll get into that later, but yeah. Um, yeah, you have Tiberius, uh, Caligula. Um, Caligula was was the first time, like it's not that Tiberius was a great, moral, wonderful emperor, all right? Like he, he probably killed um, the guy that should have been emperor, but after him, but uh, Caligula ended up being murdered by his Praetorian guard. A lot of the, when you have a, uh, when you have any sort of channel that we'll talk to you about, the worst Roman emperors, Caligula always makes the list and is usually within like the top three. And um, whereas uh, Augustus at least tried to give the the outward appearance of not just um, good administrative and military power, even though he wasn't a very good general, but um, administrative power. Uh, he also tried to give the appearance of good moral power. In fact, Augustus actually went went through the process of trying to make things like divorce and adultery and, and, and all that, uh, illegal, uh, which was kind of funny because Augustus was a horrible philanderer. <laughs> um, but he still thought it was important. He thought the, the Roman family was actually very, very important to, um, the overall benefit and strength of Rome. Uh, Tiberius during, uh, kind of the latter part of his reign kind of retreated off to an Island where he was just, I mean, just indulging in prostitutes and, and everything else. So you start to see this, this sign of like really decadent imperial. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Decadence? I guess, yeah, yeah, I said decadence. I want to say, and then Caligula just kicks that into high speed, right? So Caligula's uh, father, uh, Germanicus, um, who was, was actually the, the Roman emperor that went in and, and, or not the Roman emperor, sorry, he was the Roman general that led the um, retribution uh, raids against the Germanic tribes after um, when, when his father died, um, he was the adopted heir of Tiberius. Uh, Caligula kind of spent a lot of time with Tiberius and kind of that, that state where again, a lot of decadence, a lot of indulgence, um, not a lot of good moral behavior. And again, when, when Caligula becomes emperor um, and he's only emperor for three years and 10 months, um, it gets, it gets pretty bad. The things he's, he does, um, Claudius takes over. Uh, Claudius is, is reigned for three years. He kind of brings a, a little bit more stability back, a little bit more even keel, level-headed decisions. And then Nero comes in, right? And obviously, you know, Nero's, you, you hear all the stories about Nero fiddling while Rome burned, but uh, Nero also ended up committing suicide 
uh, because essentially there was they were going to overthrow him. The Praetorian Guard was coming after him. Then you have the Year of the Four Emperors. Oh, hey, go ahead. Um, yeah. let, let, let's play through the map just a little bit. Oh, sorry. To, to recap some of what you brought up. Yeah. Also, while we're going through this, it's worth bringing up that Caligula was the first emperor to be assassinated. Yes. Like, like explicitly, there's some rumors that Augustus might have been poisoned or Tiberius, but like Caligula was like explicitly assassinated yeah. by the yeah. Praetorians. There's no question in, in yeah. history whether or not Caligula Which was Which sets up another precedent of yeah. the Praetorians uh, meddling in, in Roman politics. The Praetorian Guard is a um, recently established, many people might have heard of this as well, the Praetorian Guard is a recently established elite military formation who's yeah. usually tasked with protecting the emperor and his family. And then over time, they become incredibly corrupt. And oh, yeah. Imagine the Secret Service being a, a heavy infantry military unit um, and then one day selling off the presidency hey, to the highest bidder. Spoiling it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get to, when you get to this thing called the crisis of the third century, you really get to, to realize just how bad the Praetorians end up becoming. And and this kind of contributes to the decline of the empire is, is the, the constant assassinations, political corruption, and the yeah. stuff that... That, that entails. But Hamilton, if you play through the map here, you'll see the, the evolution of the empire in the first, what's called the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And these are basically the descendants of Julius Caesar and Augustus. They're the ones that are ruling for the first, you know, 70-ish years, 80-ish years of the empire's existence. So you see there's a war with Parthia where they get control of Armenia. And um, this is around the time that uh, this is around the time that the Romans conquer Britain, you see another conflict with Parthia. These are brief conflicts. These are kind of on and off things. And then pause. Stop right there. Yeah. You're going to want to go back to about 70-ish AD. Okay. Um, so the first, again, 70, 80-ish years, or, or in some ways, if you want to go back to 27 BC, the first century or so of the Roman Empire, it's ruled by basically one family. Not a direct line of succession like father to son, but but larger family structure. It's, again, called the, the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And what you see is with the exception of Nero and Caligula, um, the emperors were, were pretty decent. Tiberius is very unpopular, but yeah. he was he was somewhat effective. Yeah. Augustus was popular and effective. Yeah. Um, Claudius was also yeah. unpopular for different reasons because yeah. he was considered weak and and yeah. kind of crippled, I believe. But he was also very effective. He, um, yeah, he he was a he was actually a, a master. He was actually a master politician. He 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 understood how to navigate the politics of Rome. And, and therefore, he ended up providing Rome some stability for, I think, was it 13 years? Um, what you see is the yeah. children, the kids. This is a prime example of why you should not give political power to teenagers and 20-something-year-olds. <laughs> because it's the kids that kind of wreck the show. Caligula is very young. Yeah. Nero is even younger. Nero takes office, I think, when he's a teenager. Caligula is like my age when he gets assassinated. There's another joke. Could you imagine? Yeah. yeah, could you imagine me being... Being emperor, I can imagine you being assassinated. I remember that from the previous episode. Um, but but Nero's even younger. He's like a teenager when he takes over. And Nero, I think, murders his own mother. Like, he, he yeah. goes insane. Nero is also very famous for heavily persecuting Christians. Yeah. This um, is when you, when you think of the time where they were, he was actually like, he would have Christians burning in his garden to provide light during dinner parties. Um, he fed the the. Christians to the lions in, in the Colosseum, like and massive persecution of the Christians. When a huge part of Rome burns to the ground, Nero constructs like a racing track and, and yeah. you know, some other things for his own, his own personal uses. He, 
he becomes popular with some people um, because, you know, he's, he's a political demagogue that hands out free money and free bread to, to the masses and, you know, gives them the, the whole, you know, what is it, bread and games type of thing. But he, he becomes increasingly unpopular with time until eventually there's a revolt. Uh, Nero, uh, Nero ends up committing suicide, actually. And then his death triggers what we call the the year of four emperors. It's, yeah. it's the first civil war since the Battle of Actium, uh, basically a century earlier. Yeah. And the year of four emperors marks the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And the general that emerges is not related to the previous emperors. And his name is Vespasian. And Vespasian is actually incredibly important because he ushers in what's called the Flavian dynasty. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're important is because have you ever seen the Colosseum? Mm-hmm. The the technical legal name of the Colosseum is not the Colosseum. A Colosseum is just a, it's it's. I mean, there's thousands of Colosseums. Yeah, I, I apologize. I said that Nero fed Christians of the lions of the Colosseum, but it hadn't been built yet. I apologize. I got the, that wrong. The Colo the Colosseum is is a it, it's a place that games take place. There's like. For example, there's a very, very famous Colosseum in Pola in modern day Croatia um, that's that's relatively intact. The, the reason that we call it the Colosseum is because it's the most famous one, but its actual name is the Flavian Amphitheater. And it was constructed by Vespasian. Um, and he did not live to see it finished. I believe it was Titus, his son, um, who managed to, to um, oversee its completion. And when Titus takes office, Hamilton, you could actually play this to about 80 AD, the map of the Roman Empire. Uh, when Titus completes it, there's like uh, like 100 days of like celebrations and games when the Colosseum gets inaugurated. It's a very famous event in Roman history. And this is like when Rome becomes, it's, it's around the Flavian dynasty when Rome becomes the Rome that people think of, like the Rome that yeah. men think of when they think of the Roman empire in many respects is either the area of the, of the four good emperors, which comes later or the Flavians. Yeah. Um, what's important to understand is that Rome has existed now for 800 years before it actually reaches this point. And, and I, I don't think most people appreciate that. They, they think that, you know, when they think Rome, they think the Colosseum, they think the aqueducts, they think, you know, that the massive empire expanding all over Europe and in the Levant and Anatolia and Egypt, when in reality, no, that was hundreds of years in the making. Titus uh, is also the guy that's in charge when, uh, um, when Mount Vesuvius explodes and uh, engulfs up, um, uh, what is it? It's not Pompey. Pompey. Yeah, Pompey. Um, yeah, no, Pompey, not the general. Oh, That's yeah, what yeah. I was thinking of at Pompeii, first. Yeah, yeah. It, it engulfs Pompey and Ash. Um, so it's in this time period as well. There's a lot of things that are taking place. Titus is also famous for, unfortunately, putting down a, a brutally putting down a revolt in Judea, um, where he destroys the Second Temple. This is actually something that that uh, is prophesized in the Bible: the destruction of the of the temple, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, Titus only rules for a couple years, though. Um, he's very, very, very popular. And then when he dies, I remember this from Mike Duncan's podcast. He he says on his deathbed, "I have only I have only one regret that I have." And he never told the people on his deathbed <laughs> what the regret was, what the mistake was. So historians have always kind of speculated what it was. And then after um, Titus's death, his younger, I believe it's his younger brother, Domitian takes yeah. office, and Domitian is ruthlessly attacked by historians for being like a dictator, basically. Um, although 
recent historians have actually kind of re-examined this and have concluded that it's not a broad consensus, but but recent historians have have, have tried to, to revisit Domitian's reign and have actually tried to conclude that part of the reason that Domitian is so ruthlessly attacked is because he was very much against corruption. And that led to a, a big backlash. Eventually, Domitian, you know, push comes to shove. He tries to consolidate more power, uh, potentially in the name of combating corruption. He makes too many enemies, um, you know, kind of pushes the envelope a little bit too far. And then he gets assassinated as well. Um, so he's now the, the next Roman emperor in the long line. You will see long line of Roman emperors. They get assassinated by the Praetorian guards. And um, Domitian's assassination, which the anniversary of which was actually held on the day that we had part one. I brought it up at the beginning of part one that that Nerva took office on this day in 96 AD. That was the beginning of Pax Romana, which is this century-long era of peace and prosperity. Domitian's assassination ushers in what we call the era of the five good emperors. And Nick, if you want to, I know that this is a time period that you know quite a lot about. No, I mean, I, I want to say that. I, I think obviously, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that when you, when you look at like the, so you had Nerva, Nerva was only around for like one, like a little over a year after um, the mission was taken out. And, and what was, he was just seen as kind of like a stabilizing force and then Trajan takes over and, and, Traja uh, is the adopted son of Nerva. He rules for uh, almost 20 years. And he's also the first non-Italian emperor, which which is important because you're, you're starting to, this is one of the things that is going to come in later when we talk about why did the Roman Empire start to break apart. Trajan is sometimes credited as being the best Roman emperor. Uh, that's obviously debatable and people can do that all day long. Uh, the Roman Empire hit its, its height, um, arguably under Trajan. Uh, the, the thing that's interesting though, is that again, you're, you're starting to see, um, it, it was for so long within Rome, it was impossible to think of, you know, even a prominent consul being outside of, of certain select families within Roman history, uh, certain patrician families and, and whatnot. So the idea that you would actually have an, an emperor that was not even Italian, um, is, is pretty significant. This is a pretty, pretty significant departure, um, from, from previous Roman history. And, and he actually did a fairly good job with respect to, um, stabilization of the empire. Um, I, I want to say like, yeah, he, he was the one that increased in Dacia, right? I think that was Trajan um, was the one who takes, uh, basically modern day Transylvania, Southern yeah, Romania. Yeah. That old Dacia area. Uh, so Trajan rules for, for 20 years. And then after that, Hadrian comes on. Now here's one of the things to understand about Hadrian. Hadrian rules for about 20 years. He's the one that kind of ends Roman expansion. So when you hear about like Hadrian's wall in, in, uh, England, which was for lack of a better, I mean, this isn't exact, but think of it as kind of like the borderline between what we think of as England and Scotland. Uh, at that time, I think it was the Picts um, and whatnot. So it was this idea that Hadrian started recognizing the the problems associated with kind of endless expansion and endless wars of expansion. And and so he he actually doesn't spend a whole lot of time in Rome Um during his, during his reign, he, he travels a great deal. He's very much into the art and culture of Greece. Um, he, he kind of, again, pulls back and now he, he kind of, he's trying to consolidate gains and create clear lines, whether it's geographical bearers or it's Hadrian's wall up, up in uh, England in order to say like, okay, here's the, here's the expand, here's the extent of the Roman empire. Um, 
Hadrian dies of natural causes. He's followed by... It's worth noting that this is the peak of the empire territorially. Yeah. Is, is at the end of Trajan, beginning of Hadrian, before Hadrian pulls out of Mesopotamia. Because one of the things that Trajan does is not just conquers Dacia. Uh, Trajan conquers Mesopotamia from the Parthians. He wages a very successful war. He takes out Babylon. He takes Tessaphon, which is the... Um, uh, well... Okay, he takes, technically he takes uh, Seleucia, which is the the capital of Parthia. Eventually it will become Tessaphon when the uh, Sassanids come along. So basically modern day Baghdad area. Yeah. You've actually been there before. Yeah. <laughs> um, he takes Mesopotamia and humiliates the Parthians, kind of gets revenge for Crassus and some of these previous uh, Roman defeats against their arch enemy in the east. And then Trajan dies and Hadrian decides to pull out of Mesopotamia just two years later. And his conclusion was basically that it would be too difficult to to yeah. to, to hold these areas. And he's so, probably right, and he's probably right. So he pulls back, and this map that you see here at one nineteen is basically Rome right after the Parthian War when the Romans hand back Mesopotamia to Parthia. So this is right after their their territorial peak. It's it's their territorial peak minus their brief occupation of Mesopotamia for two years. Yeah. and this is under under Hadrian, and mm. and Hadrian in many respects, like you said, he consolidates the empire. He builds defensive fortifications. Yeah. He also constructs tons of of public works like bathhouses everywhere he he's a big fan of of constructing coliseums in cities he spends more time outside of italy than than most emperor he's like the opposite of um who's the emperor that came before marcus aurelius that spent 23 years in italy and did nothing uh antoninus uh, pius yes he's like the opposite of antoninus pius who yeah. spends his entire reign in italy because hadrian is just traveling he's traveling constantly the there, there was a question there was a question here it goes um i thought vespasian put down the jewish revolt the destruction of the second temple was in 70 a.d there was actually so vespasian was actually uh in judea fighting and putting down a jewish revolt when you have this crisis and he actually ended up assuming power so he was in there fighting assumed power and then under his reign they actually sacked Jerusalem, which if you want to, I think it's, I think it's Kings and generals might be Invictus. There's a couple of YouTube channels that do a really good, a really good, like visual representation and whatnot of, of the sacking of Jerusalem. There's also, if, if you're interested, I'm not saying this is like totally historically accurate or whatnot, but there was an old, older movie called Masada, uh, which actually talks about when Vespasian was emperor. So they, they, they destroyed, um, they destroyed Jerusalem. And then you had, um, you had various Jewish revolts that were still taking place. And like the last holdout was Masada. And it was actually an incredibly difficult siege that the Romans had to do on this holdout, which had been, I think, uh, developed by Herod. Um, and if, if you want to watch this kind of a, a cool movie and, and this is before they had CGI and everything. So if they wanted to depict a bunch of Roman soldiers, they just had to get, you know, a thousand extras and, and put them into gear. And it was pretty cool. But yeah, yeah. To your point, Vespasian, uh, there was a, a lot of Jewish revolts. Vespasian was putting down one of them as an actual general in the field. He, he, you know, had to go and actually he fought to become emperor, became emperor. And then um, Hadrian, I think, was the last one that the big one. He, he was the one that like just decimated. It was no longer Judea after that. They, they changed it to Palestine um, as kind of an insult uh, to, to the Jewish people. And he renamed uh, Jerusalem Alia Capitolina. Um, he, he's the guy that like, I mean, th so, so there's there's another Jewish revolt. I think it's like the third one at this point. And yeah. Hadrian just brutal basically commits genocide yeah um against the jews and um 
that's one of the things that Hadrian's known for. Hadrian's known for building a bunch of walls, building a bunch of bathhouses, and absolutely brutalizing Judea. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to note is by this point in the process, we've we've gone through what 150 years of Roman history now at this point since Augustus. A lot has happened. Yeah. And and we've covered Actually, it. Actually, more like about, more like we're we're about to hit Varus and, and Commodus, so that's 200 years. It's over 200 years. Well, by 120ish though. Yeah. I mean the the, the Judea revolt is actually in the 130s, but by by 120ish, 130ish, I mean that's like 150 years since the Battle of Actium. Yeah. So what you see is yes, there's some there's some exceptions, right? There's the Great Revolt in Judea. There's a couple on and off wars with Parthia. The big one being Trajan coming in and taking Mesopotamia briefly. You have a conflict in Dacia where Trajan takes Dacia as well. You have the Roman conquest of Britain, but but these are that most of these are Roman victories and oh, they're yeah. relatively short campaigns as well. So this is a time period again. This is why the the longer view of the Pax Romana doesn't start with the five good emperors. It actually goes all the way back to Augustus himself, where they say it's. It's not a, a century of, of peace and relative peace, no. but definitely prosperity. It's 200 years of it because we went through 150 years. We're about to go through 200 years relatively quick because after Hadrian comes the guy who does nothing for 23 years, yeah. right? Um, Antoninus Pius, who I, I actually, to be honest, I really like Antoninus Pius. <laughs> He's the ideal libertarian Roman emperor <laughs> because he sits in Rome for 23 years, a whole generation yeah. of nothing. And, and when I say nothing happens in those 23 years, I mean, nothing <laughs> happens. He's not trying to go on any wars. He's not trying to, we have you know, very little expand the empire. We have very little evidence yeah. of it, it. It's, it's not like a, a dark ages where we have no history records of anything. It's, it's not that we don't have any records. It's that we have records of nothing. Well, and here's the other thing too, is that there, there's an interesting, there's, a, there's now a very interesting archeological um, argument that archaeologists tend to believe, especially when we're talking about antiquity. Now, Rome, we have a, a lot more manuscripts and whatnot to go off of, but it's this idea that a, a civilization or an empire or a ruler is great if there's a lot of blood, a lot of conquests, and a lot of monuments, and a lot of massive buildings. Alexander building. the Great and Napoleon are yeah. the best. A yeah. lot of massive building projects. When in reality, that might be good for that emperor, that might be fun for historians, but if you actually look at what's good for the people, well, where people actually thrive is when you have relative peace, stability, there aren't there aren't political leaders desperately trying to draft your kids to go to war to expand the empire for the glory of Rome. There aren't a lot of people, you know, taxing you to death in order to build massive projects. There because at this point, what happens within that relative stability is that people are able to build businesses. They're able to build, they're able to build and generate wealth for themselves. They're not constantly worried about invasions. They're not constantly worried about wars. They're not constantly worried about inflation. They're not constantly worried about economic upheaval. And so they thrive. And it turns out that when regular people thrive, they don't build the Colosseum, right? When regular people thrive, they, they buy the things that actually work best for their family, like good ranchers. That's right. If good ranchers had existed during the Roman Empire, first of all, I don't know that Rome would have fallen. I, I think it, I think it'd be fine. I think Rome would exist today if it had had the benefit of good ranchers. And under a time like Antonius Pius, when you didn't have a lot of wars of expansion, and now all of a sudden regular people had disposable income because it wasn't constantly being confiscated from them by corrupt politicians, then they would have been able to say, you know what? As I look at my budget and I look at what's best for my family, I want to make sure that I'm feeding them quality meat, 
right? Quality meat delivered to your door. That's poultry, that's beef, that's pork, that's wild caught seafood, right? All of these things that are able to exist because a company in a time of relative peace and prosperity and security is able to team up with good, hardworking American farmers in order to get you quality products. And now with promo code Nick, what are you going to get? Some of you have watched, you know this, but have you ordered yet? Because you're going to get $25 off. You're going to get free shipping. And if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, you're going to get two pounds of free ground beef every month for that subscription, which, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, in order to combat inflation, something that we're about to be talking about here within the fall of the Roman Empire, Good Ranchers allows you to lock in your price for two years, right? That means if tomorrow the United States has a horrible period of the year of the five presidents. And all of a sudden we have people going in and just screwing everything up. You're still locked into a good price because good ranchers is a good business that deals with good ranchers and gets you a quality product to your door. So use that promo code, Nick, try them out again. I, I can't say this with absolute certainty, but I'm pretty sure again, the Roman empire would not have fallen had good ranchers uh, been running the show. <laughs> all right. So, all right, back to, uh, um, the <laughs> good ranchers, the official, the official meat of the Pax Romana. Yeah. Um, so uh, another thing that that Antoninus Pius does is because um, I'm going to give this guy some street cred because again he he's an emperor who does nothing, but I mean that in a good way for yeah. 23 years. Um, he also presided over the 900th anniversary of the founding of Rome, mm -hmm. and um, uh, another thing that he did was he was very frugal. Yeah. Um, when when Pius passed away, and by the way, when he was selected as emperor to succeed Hadrian, it was expected, Hadrian expected that, oh, this guy's going to be a caretaker for just a few years. And then he's going to, you know, he's going to die because he was in his fifties mm -hmm. when he was, when he was selected as Hadrian's successor, his adopted son. Yeah. The Roman emperors did this thing all the time where they would adopt an heir if they didn't. Well, have let's just one. say Hadrian probably wasn't going to have a lot of offspring. No, he was not <laughs> yeah. going to have, although he was married to a woman, which was interesting. Yeah. Um, um, that, that's a, for those who don't get the joke, Adrian was not into women. Um, so anyway, he, he selects, uh, Antonius Pius as his successor with the expectation that Pius is only going to be there for just a few years. And then this guy that we've probably all heard of, he wrote some books called Marcus Aurelius is supposed to succeed him. Well, Pius doesn't die. He stays in office for 23 years. But another thing that he does that's actually a positive thing for Marcus Aurelius is that he accumulates a vast treasury of, of I think it's 650 million denarii while he's emperor because he's not fighting any wars. And the empire's at the peak of its economic strength. Like, it's around this time period that Rome's population explodes to a million people. We think that that's small today, a million people. That's that's a decently sized city, but that's not super large. I mean, that's, you know, that's like the Richmond metro area. That's that's not extremely large. Think about in the ancient world, though, a million people in one city, the largest city in the entire world yeah. was Rome in this time period. And no Wi-Fi. That was a bad no Wi-Fi. No, they did have a sewer system though. They did have a sewer system. They but, have a very complex sewer system. By by handing off, you know, eventually Antonius Pius dies. He's I think like 74 or 75 when he finally passes away in 161 AD. And he's succeeded by um uh Lucius Verus and Marcus Aurelius. And also good on him for for actually uh fulfilling uh, Marcus Aurelius' wish that he would be co-emperor alongside Lucius, who most people kind of ignore. 
Um, Marcus Aurelius is in many respects considered by by a lot of historians and fa and fans of the Roman Empire as as arguably the greatest emperor who ever lived. And I don't necessarily think that's entirely true because there's two big dings against him and we're about to heavily go into one of them. Go ahead. Um, but to give him credit beforehand, Marcus Aurelius is a great philosopher. He he's he he wrote this um private journal, private diary that that is eventually became translated and you know has been read by tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people throughout history. It's known as Meditations. I highly recommend it. He's Marcus Aurelius was was very very big into philosophy. He was he was big into Stoicism. Um, he provides a lot of a lot of decent life advice actually. Um, Aurelius was was he might not have been the greatest emperor. He was not a bad emperor, but he might not have been the greatest emperor, but he was certainly one of the most intelligent men. You know what he shouldn't have given any advice on? Raising sons. <laughs> he should have pulled a Hadrian and just adopted someone else. Yeah, shouldn't it? Because uh, his son was Commodus. And for those of you who have seen that documentary called Gladiator, <laughs> I'm waiting for the comment section to blow up on me right now. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's worth so, noting that Aurelius is the end of the five good emperors. There's yeah. a reason it's not called the six good emperors. Yeah. So Commodus, Commodus is you know, the son of Marcus Aurelius. Um, you know what's what's interesting is they try to make Marcus Aurelius out to be, or excuse me, Commodus out to be like a, a coward and whatnot in the movie. By by the way, I say that complete tug and shake. Gladiator was not even close to being. There, there were certain things they got right with some of the uniforms and whatnot based off of that stage of the empire. But the whole like there. <laughs> The whole history of that in, in that movie is just garbage. So just watch it as a fun, entertaining action movie. Don't watch it and, and feel like you're walking away with, wow, this must have been what it was like for Aurelius and Commodus. Like, that's not the case. But um, yeah, Commodus was, was emperor for, for 12 years. Again, um, he was strangled to death in a conspiracy involving his Praetorian guard uh, and his mistress. <laughs> because oh, it's even worse than that. He played gladiator and yeah. like killed amputees in the Colosseum, the yeah. Colosseum yeah. this time. Yeah, he he is nuts. He portrayed himself as um, Hercules. Yeah, and like at one point, he he literally renamed Rome. After yeah. himself, like the city after himself, he renamed the legions, the Commodii. Yeah. He renamed the Senate, the, the, uh, you know, Commodus's fortunate Senate. Yeah. He, he had 12 names because a lot of these Roman emperors would adopt names of other more famous emperors that came mm -hmm. before. So like, for example, it was a phrase that the Roman Senate would use when a new emperor came to office. May he be more fortunate than Augustus and better than Trajan. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he adopted like 12 names. He renamed every single uh, month of the calendar after one of his 12 names. Yeah. And eventually people just woke up and realized this guy is insane. Yeah. He's like, like Nero, like Caligula level. Insane. Oh yeah. Yeah. No question. No question. So once again, the Praetorian guard steps in and, and kills him. Murder him in a bathhouse. And, and but he, you know, what's so funny is imagine like you have this vast conspiracy where all these guys get together and like, all right, boys, we need to get rid of this emperor because he's nuts. And then they have this conspiracy. They finally kill him. And then guess what? The minute after they kill him, they realize, oh, wait, we had no idea what to do after we get rid of the emperor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So here's the part where, listen, we're, we're not going to go through every single emperor of Rome because we want to get into the parts of the, the parallels with, again, kind of the United States and some of the things that happened and the problems that actually resulted. We've got a question, if that's all yeah. right. We have one from the MTA channel. If the Roman Empire fell, why is it so heavily revered as the most modeled aspirational form of government? By longest lasting forms of government, a monarchy seems to take the cake. I think what's I think what's interesting about Rome to most people with respect to its system of government is that it overthrowed uh, an absolute monarchy, right? At least the, that's what the legend states. And then it opened up uh, a, re- a Republican form of government with some form of representation, but but more specifically, just an, an absolute um, aversion to the centralization of political power. Um, and, and it, and it did so and, and managed to be successful. Like if you're, if you're looking at, cause people point to, well, Greece did the same thing right in the West. So why aren't, why aren't we focused more on Greece? Well, there is a lot of fo- focus on Greece and the Greek city states and whatnot, but a- until, <laughs> until you get to Macedon, right. Which was an absolute monarchy, right. It, it, it ends up taking, you have the Peloponnesian war, which kind of weakens the various Greek city states, which had been kind of, you had, you had one league aligned with Athens. You had another league aligned with Sparta. Um, Sparta ends up kind of winning the war, but then really has a difficult time managing it. And then over time, um, Macedon rises up, which is considered kind of a Greek backwater. So yes, you, you had various states that had representative forms of government, but none of them really expanded beyond kind of their immediate geographical area. Like even when you talk about, well, what, what are you talking about? Didn't the Greeks conquer Persia? Well, Macedon did, but Macedon wasn't a representative government. Um, you, you could argue that there was still a, a higher level of egalitarianism within Macedonian culture and aspects of Greek culture than maybe in like Persian culture at that time. Um, for instance, they didn't see Alexander as a God King, even though he kind of started to try to dabble on that. Um, so that I think is what is, is significant is that you see the Roman Republic as a legit Republic with two consuls and the tribunes and, um, and the, the plebeians, the, is it plebeians or plebeians? Plebeians, plebeians, I, it's it's tomato, 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 right? You know who I'm talking about having some representation within the government. And uh, again, by the time we're, by the time the fall of the Republic exists, they have a multinational, they have a multinational empire as a Republican form of government. And and I think that's fascinating because you don't really see that anywhere else in history at this point. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, I can't think of another, I cannot think of another nation state or, an, or a government that had that degree of power that was also largely representative in nature up to this point in world history, or even, you know, immediately following it that, that operated this way. Um, now, obviously when, when you get into the principate, that that's far more in lines with what you might consider kind of the, the absolute monarchies of the time uh, or, or that, that came after and, and existed in other places around the world. But I think, I think it's important to note that there was an incredible amount of, of power involved. They did an incredible job with respect to assimilation within Roman culture. Um, and then their, their trade networks were, were absolutely amazing. Um, and, and all of that, I think, and not to mention the fact that the reason why you study so much of it in Western culture is because obviously like in the United States or in Europe, we're, we're creatures of Western culture. 
We're, we're creations of Western history. I love it when people get all pissy, like, why don't we study? Because it wasn't as influential to our actual culture. Does that mean you shouldn't study? Does that mean you shouldn't study Chinese history or Persian history or African history or South? No, you should study those things. They're, they're all important and relevant. But if you're, if anybody's wondering why, if you grow up in the West, you spend more time on Roman history than you might on Chinese history, it's because Roman history had more to do with respect to the development of your cultures from your language to different terminology that we use to Latin being the base of, of several European languages to the systems of government and our ideas about government and civil society. So that's, that's why it, it, I, I believe it holds this elevated position within our study of history. And there's nothing wrong with that. Just like if you grew up in another part of the world, you would predominantly study empires associated with that area. Not that you would ignore other ones, but you're going to first try to properly understand the culture in which you exist before generally branching out to, to understand um, other cultures and how they approach things. And so that would be my answer to that question. I don't know if you want to. No, I totally agree. I think I said in a previous episode, I can't remember which episode it was, but I brought up in a previous episode that like, I have great respect for like Eastern philosophies and Eastern histories. I, I greatly admire the Persians, the Indians and the Chinese, but they're not my legacy. My, my legacy is, is, or, you know, the, the, the I, I have everything, you know, historically I'm descended from the Romans because I'm Western European. I'm Italian. I'm even more descended from the Romans. Like it, that's the legacy that I, I draw upon as somebody who lives in the West. It's and, and if you live in the West, it's the Roman Empire, not not, you know, Chandragupta in India, not not the different Chinese dynasties that lay the foundation for the history on which the West has been built. And it's, it's not just about like, you know, ethnic groups occupying a certain geographic position. Like, again, like for anybody who brings up and, and I'm stunned at how many comments I've seen from not, not like in our circle. Right. But like, I'm stunned from how many comments I've seen lately. Maybe it's as a backlash for everybody talking about Rome lately. I'm stunned at how many comments I've seen from people that are like, well, why do we need to learn about Rome? Because they were losers. You know, the empire doesn't exist anymore or <laughs> everybody forgot everything about Rome in the dark ages. And, and that's just such a, a historically inaccurate and quite frankly, ignorant take to dismiss Rome because, oh, well, they fell or to dismiss Rome as that was a long time ago or people forgot about it. People did not forget about it. People wrote stuff down that lasted centuries. Yeah. I mean, people today will read Cicero. They'll read Livy. They'll read Plutarch. Think about the literature that has survived thousands of years. Well, can, can we say another and thing? And it's not just the, 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 the literature. If I may, may like briefly go through it, I mean, think about the languages, the Romance languages. They're descended from Latin. Latin forms the basis of, of the vast majority of languages that the Western world uses, including English, despite the fact that English is technically a Germanic language, not a Romance language. Think about the legal and political systems. Think about the architecture and the art. That's still relevant even today. Like, you can just go through the, I mean, think about Christianity itself. It was the Romans who crucified Jesus and then eventually adopted Christianity as their religion and then propagated it to the ends of the earth and made it the largest religion in the world. Like the impact of the Roman Empire, uh, well, uh, not even just of the empire, also of the Republic, its legacy has lasted for, for millennia after Rome. It, it, its legacy has outlived the civilization itself. And in fact, 
its legacy has lasted, I would argue, what, twice as long as the civilization itself even existed. That's why it's relevant. That's why men care about it. Sorry, that, that was a bit of a rant, but like no, somebody I, I, needs to defend the fact well, that, that well, this to, is relevant. To give you an idea, I, I mean, if you're wanting to talk about the Roman Empire just from the Western Roman perspective, we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a good thousand years. If you, if you add uh, Byzantium into that and the Eastern Roman Empire, which I think is perfectly appropriate to do, uh, when was the fall of uh, Constantinople? 1453. 1453. So think about a city state in central Italy that in Italy that was founded in the 700s BC, right? According to legend, to which the last vestiges of that empire didn't actually finally collapse until the 1400s AD. That's an, that's an over 2000 year run for a single empire. That's nuts. That's, that's incredible. The United States has been around for 246 years. I mean, that's, that's the part you have to put this in perspective with all the ups, with all the downs, with, with everything else. We've been around for 246 years and we're already talking about problems. And part of that, I, again, I think everything is hyper sped up with technology. Um, but I mean, it is just amazing to think that even in the midst, even in the midst of everything that was going on, the, the, this is, this is one of the true, I think, tributes to the way that the Romans actually managed the empire with their governorships and, and with their processes, even when you had an emperor, um, even when you had an emperor and, and even when you had an emperor as bad as Commodus, it's not like trade stopped in, you know, Anatolia. It, it's, it's not like people weren't still collecting crops in the Iberian peninsula. It's not like goal wasn't still engaging in mining operate. Like these things were still operating like day-to-day -day life for your average citizens across the empire was relatively stable. And, and that's impressive. That's incredibly impressive. And, and so I think we need to keep all that in mind. Now, what I, what I want to do and Christian this is probably gonna drive Christians a little bit nuts, but I want to make sure that we actually, get this done in this episode is we need to, we need to start to like kind of jump ahead a little bit. So we're not going to go over every emperor needless to say that after Commodus, you, you start to see once again, a significant breakdown. You have the year of the five emperors. So after Commodus is killed by his Praetorian guard, you have the year of the five emperors where again, it just like it sounds, you have one year with five different emperors because things are changing over so quickly with respect to the power politics and the Praetorian guard within the generals, within the empire with people potentially, you know, you know, seeing you, you have people, you have people being emperor for like two months at a time. Um, and then, Finally, you have Severus come in and he starts the Severan dynasty. He rules for 17 years. Um, one of the things that you start to see within the Severan dynasty is this, and this is probably a good time to start to talk about both the, the problems within the military and inflation. Yeah. So, so remember when I brought up Marcus Aurelius and I said there were two things that he did that he gets a ding against. He was fantastic when it came to philosophy. He was, he was a very, very wise and, and relatively peace loving, although he had to fight a lot of wars, the Marco Manic wars relatively wise and peace-loving emperor um very very wise but he was terrible at raising sons because commodus was nuts and the second thing that i didn't get to was he debased the currency and this is something that when you look at the grand scheme of history of the empire this is the thing that kills the roman empire it's it's inflation and it's emperors debasing the currency without even realizing that they are destroying the wealth upon which 
the greatest civilization, the greatest empire the world had ever seen had been built upon. All that trade, all that wealth, all that influence, all that military power, all the, the, the ability to defend these borders and maintain law and order and allow for the free movement of goods and people to create civilization, to build vast cities of a million people, all of that stuff had been constructed off of a stable, sound currency that enabled all of that to happen. And by debasing the currency, almost every emperor did it for 200 plus years. Yeah. They, they, they set the stage, including the five good emperors, including Antonius Pius, who also debased the currency. Good and bad emperors alike for 200 years debased the currency. And Hamilton, we've actually got some infographics that, that we wanted to get to because this is, as we're moving into what caused the collapse of the Roman Empire and why you should care about it 2,000, you know, or I guess 1,500 years years later, the reason why you, you, should, you should care about it is because past is prologue, my friend. And what destroyed the Roman Empire is something that we've done Y minutes on this before. It's destroyed the Yuan Dynasty. It destroyed Weimar Germany. It destroyed Venezuela and Zimbabwe just a yeah. couple decades ago. It is a universal plague on civilization. And one of the two things that caused the collapse of this empire, and it's a warning sign for us today, is inflation. So this is a... Um, an infographic that I found from the venture capitalist visual visual capitalist.com. Sorry, visual capitalist. Yeah, they do really good infographics. It, this is fantastic. We're, we're going to briefly go through some of this because a lot of this is backstory. This is just talking about the state of the empire. It had 130 million people, which was a lot back then. Um, it talks about some of the trade networks and then it, it brings up, you know, the question of how could such a powerful empire collapse if you keep going Hamilton and I'm going to try to to get across this for our audio listeners that don't get to see this. Um, Nick and I will probably read through some of this because, yeah, uh, like like this is uh, it gets so bad that it triggers something called the crisis of the third century. And what? to give you an idea of how chaotic this is, six months after Commodus's assassination, when I brought up earlier that they didn't have a plan for who to succeed him, yeah, and it became a free for all, and it basically triggered a fifty to a hundred long year period where this is the reason why we can't go through every single emperor because in fifty years there were twenty six emperors. And one guy that came along, this guy named uh, Didius Julianus, decides to buy the office of emperor from the Praetorians. They literally hold a public auction yeah. for the office of emperor. And this guy, who's a wealthy senator, wins in part because the currency has been debased a whole lot. And it's been falling into the hands of the uber wealthy and powerful rather than the ordinary people and, and also the legions themselves. And so he buys the office of the emperorship. And then it's like less than six months later, he gets murdered by the same people that he bought the office of the emperorship from. Yeah. So, I mean, the reason I say this story is to get across just how chaotic the situation becomes. And it becomes chaotic because by this point in time, they've run out of currency to debase. Yeah. So Hamilton, if you just keep scrolling down, Nick, if you want to, well, yeah, the, the one thing I want is we, we've talked a lot about inflation on the podcast, obviously, because we're, we're watching, we're witnessing inflation taking place in the United States as well as other places around the world right now. And we've pointed out the absurdity of like American politicians going, inflation's a global phenomenon. Yes. When central banks across the world inflate currency, it becomes a global phenomenon, especially when the world's reserve currency is doing it. So yeah, good, good job, Nancy. You've pointed out the obvious. The, the problem is, is what, what does it actually mean? It's not a phenomenon 
phenomenon in the sense that like, gosh, we're just not really sure how this happens. Like we know how it happens. Um, and the way it happened there was they weren't printing fiat currency. They were debasing the currency. So what that means is, is that, you know, your, your original denarius, which was like the, the think of that as the dollar of Rome, right? It was your denarius and kind of the, the average, a, a good way to think of the denarius for a long time was it was kind of the average pay for one day's like labor. Um, you're, you're, Sorry, Hamilton's moving the screen right now. <laughs> go, go back, go back up. <laughs> All right. So the reason I wanted, I want to talk about, we want to talk about how important this is because a lot of people look at like, when they think about an empire collapsing, they think about the barbarian invasions of Rome. They think about some of the problems that they had with respect to immigration policy. They think about corruption and all of that's true. But one of the things that is important to understand and, and Christian has pointed that out there's certain conditions that are necessary for a strong empire or a strong nation to dissolve into, into chaos and destruction. And then you also need a catalyst, right? So we talked about like in World War One, you, you had a bunch of European powers, you had the industrial age, you had um, massive militaries, you have massive amounts of mistrust. And then you had the catalyst, which was the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Now, had the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand taken place without all of those other conditions, we wouldn't have had World War One, right? That that was a catalyst based on conditions. What we're talking about here and why it seems that that most major civilization collapse have a, a strong, a very, very significant economic underpinning as the result of it is because it's it's hard to believe in the glory of Rome if you're starving. Right. If, if you don't understand where your next meal is coming from, if you don't understand how you're going to pay your bills, you, you stop worrying like the 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 overall, you know, uh, depth and breadth of what you worry about gets very, very narrow, very, very quick. And when you debase a currency and then all of a sudden you have rapid rates of inflation and now you can't afford to buy anything that you could afford to buy last month or last year or two years ago, that has a drastic impact on how you're going to respond to that, not just economically, but potentially politically. And what you, what you see taking place right now within the Roman Empire is the military is now playing a critical role with respect to who actually maintains power. If you control enough legions or you're close enough to the Praetorian Guard, you can literally buy the office. Now, I don't want to pretend that that was a common thing. It wasn't. But if you were a prominent general, that was how you seized power in Rome. And so obviously, if you were the governor of a province that had more legions assigned to you or you had more um, <clears throat> war ready legions assigned to you, you are automatic. You are an automatic consideration <laughs> for imperial power or for the purple, as they called it. Now, if you have a, a high inflationary economy where you're constantly debasing the currency and your ability to maintain power is based off of your ability to keep the army happy, right? Well, a high inflation economy doesn't is not a high productive economy. It's not one where you're collecting a bunch of taxes because everyone's doing well because nobody's doing well in a high inflation economy. But you have to keep the soldiers happy. Well, the soldiers are mad because their denarii doesn't pay for what it used to pay for. So you got to give them more denarii, right? You got to give them more denarius in order to, to, to keep the army happy. Well, how are you going to get more denarius if you can't actually get it through greater productivity and taxation? You further debase the currency. And so what you have is this death spiral that is beginning to take place within the Roman Empire. Now, as you can see right now, this is, this is a picture of 200 AD, and you can see you have this massive trade network. Why is that trade network possible? Three reasons. Three reasons, right? 
You have a secure, a relatively secure environment. Nobody's really challenging the Roman Empire right now. Even though you have you have some powers on the peripheral, you know, you have, you have the Germanic tribes, which are certainly a, th- a threat, but they're only a threat along border regions, right? You have the the um, various Persian Parthian empires over in the east, which are a threat, but they're not a threat to the old overall structure of Rome. They're they're primarily a threat to like eastern Anatolia, the Levant, you know, those areas. Um, so you have stability, you have really good infrastructure for the time because the Roman road network, not to mention the fact that they control the Mediterranean Sea and a good portion of the Black Sea. And a lot of your major trade doesn't take place overland when it comes to great distances. It takes place through shipping. And when you have one power controlling the most vital trade network within the entire region, that means that, and because also the thing you need to understand is the Roman Empire decimated piracy within the Mediterranean Sea. There's actually a really funny story of Julius Caesar being taken captive uh, by pirates. The pirates suggesting a ransom, Julius Caesar being offended because the ransom wasn't high enough, demands that they, I think, double it, and then vows to murder them all. And then as soon as he's released, he does. He comes back with the Navy and murders them all. But the, the point of what I'm saying is, is that they allowed for the stability of trade, both overland with the road network, along with... Um, um, being able to travel within a relatively peaceful ocean going environment within the Mediterranean sea. Right. And you had a stable currency. You had a saleable currency that would be accepted pretty much everywhere that people relied upon that people uh, knew they could pay their taxes with. And so all of those things made for an incredibly good economic environment. Um, not to mention the fact that you also had uh, various standards of private property rights as well. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of like cronyism and corruption baked into the system. There was, but you know, a, a commoner could actually make a very good living within the Roman empire by being a commercial success, right? So those are all the factors that, that made for a good. Once you start debasing the currency, once you start having this situation where now there's complete political unrest and, and the military needs to essentially be paid off by whoever's in charge, and you start to see this with what's called donatives. So whenever a, sorry, whenever a new emperor would come into power, it wasn't good enough that they just had, um, you know, the one of, one of the ways that they would, pardon me, one of the ways that they would in, ensure the the um, uh, loyalty of the army and the Praetorian Guard was they would do a donative. So it became this tradition that oh, a new emperor is going to increase the pay. And it's going to do some sort of like one-time expenditure. Think of it as like a signing bonus, right? Like you get to be emperor, where's our bonus? And this is the part where if you start to, to scroll down, you see the Roman debasement. Major silver coin used during the first 220 years of the empire was the denarius. The coin between the size of a modern nickel and dime was worth approximately a day's wages for a skilled laborer or craftsman. During the first days of the empire, the coins were of high purity, holding 4.5 grams of pure silver. Now, here's another question. This is the difference between fiat currency, paper currency, and commodity-based currency. So a commodity-based currency is something where the currency itself, the thing used for the currency, has value in and of itself. Silver has value. It doesn't just have value because the Roman Empire says it has value. It has value because no matter where you go in the world, silver is useful. And because it's useful, it ends up, because it's useful, because it's easy to, to, it's divisible, you can make it up into like, you know, little coins that are easy to carry around, because it's widely accepted, there's like five characteristics of currency, silver and gold meet those characteristics. So 
you can't just, they couldn't just like print more denarius, right? Because there was a silver component. So they started to debase it, which means you had less and less silver within the coins. And part of the reason why they did this, and this is where it goes into the, by the way, Christian's the one that found this. It was an excellent, it's one of the best like summaries of the debasement of the Roman currency I've ever seen. He goes, however, with a finite supply of silver and gold entering the empire, Roman spending was limited by the amount of denarii that, the, that could be minted. This made financing the pet projects of emperors challenging. How was the newest war, uh, Thermae palace or circus to be paid for? Go ahead and said, Roman officials found a way to work around this. Go ahead and um, scroll down. And this is where you start to see the debasement of the currency to where each individual coin has more bronze or some other metal that isn't as valuable and less and less silver as a result. And then this is where you really see this come into effect. Scroll down just a little bit more here. And what we're looking at is a chart. And what the chart shows is it goes from 64 uh, AD to 268 uh, AD. And it's showing you the overall purity of the Roman denarius. And you can see here, like Caracalla tried to, this, this is funny, like by the time of Marcus Aurelius, the denarius was only about 75% silver, right? By the time you get to Caracalla, he does a, a massive inflationary policy where he goes, he tried a different method of debasement. He introduced the double denarius, which is worth twice the denarius in face value. However, it only had the weight of 1.5 denarius. And then by the time you get to uh, Gallienus, um, the coins had barely 5% silver. Each coin was a bronze core with a thin coating of silver. The shine quickly wore off to reveal the poor quality underneath. But this is the part that is crazy, especially when you look at modern monetary theorists today, right? It's this idea that, well, no, 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 we, we can have fiat currency and we can have inflationary currency. We just have to be careful. We just have to do different gimmicks and different mechanisms. And if we inflate the currency this way and we make sure it goes to this people, it's actually going to increase economic output. It, it's Caracalla, people. They're like, oh, no, 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 we're going to give you twice the denarii, uh, but it actually has 1.5 the silver. Well, this is even worse for fiat currency because they can literally just print. It's a lot more difficult to debase your currency than it is to just print or machine go burr. And so when you find, but, but understand, why did the inflation happen? You had a centralized power that was trying to maintain power that needed to pay, needed to do two things. It needed to pay off the military and it needed to prevent revolts from its citizens. So bread and circuses for the people, donatives for the military, and all the time you're engaging in this process, like more buildings, you're engaging in this process where you're having to debase your currency in order to pay for it all. But at the same time you're debasing your currency, you're pissing off the people that you're trying to pay off because their denarius doesn't buy as much. Sound familiar? Have we not seen both Democrat and Republican administrations. For anybody on here that thinks, I, I never call Republicans to task. Here's me calling Republicans to task. You have Democrat and Republican administrations over decades now engaging in various ways to screw with monetary policy so that they can spend more money without directly taxing you. See, if they directly taxed you to pay for it, you'd be mad. But if they just engage in inflationary monetary policy, then Nancy Pelosi gets to get online and be like, well, this is a global phenomenon. I don't know. We just woke up one day and the bubonic inflation was here. No, you engage, you deliberately engage in this sort of monetary policy. And the point is, is that none of this is new. It was happening then as well for similar reasons. We didn't have the same, we obviously don't have the same problem with paying off our military. But you can't tell me with massive federal entitlement programs 
and massive, massive federal spending programs that we're not engaging in inflationary currency so that politicians can buy elections. And I don't mean buy them in some sort of nefarious, you know, um, you know, stealing it way. I mean, they're actually using completely legal mechanisms to buy elections. That's what's going on. Um, we actually did a why minute on this that might be worth playing because I think this encapsulates again, just how devastating the debasement of the denarius was to the Roman economy and also to the security of the empire itself. And it's worth noting the reason they were able to get away with it was because it was a gradual thing. Yeah. It was, we're talking over the course of 200 years of the denarius going from if you look at like zero AD and the height of like Augustus's reign to about 200, just before 200 AD. So like the end of um, the end of Commodus, like 193 ish, what you see is the fall of the denarius from like a hundred, effectively a hundred percent silver to like 70 ish percent silver, 70, 70 to 75%. Cause it was about 75% under Marcus Aurelius. So it, it fell, it was debased by 25% over almost 200 years. But what you see is in the third century, it goes, it just completely collapses. And this is why you get this thing that we're going to get to in this episode called the crisis of the third century, where the Roman empire very nearly collapsed, what, 200 years before it actually did. Um, so this is a why minute on, um, on the 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 collapse of the denarius and how this this completely destroyed the Roman Empire, we we published this what like earlier this year I think. This was seven months ago. Yep. So it was earlier this year. Do you want to play it now or do you just want to show? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, there's also a chart when this is done that that I sent you that I'd love to show our our um, uh, watchers on YouTube. This small coin destroyed the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. For centuries, historians and scholars argued that the Roman Empire collapsed because of barbarian invasions. But actually, Rome's inability to defend its borders was merely a symptom of a much larger problem. So picture this. The year is 180 AD. Rome was at the height of its economic, political, and military power. To be a Roman citizen was to live in a golden age known as the Pax Romana. And yet, in the span of just one lifetime, Rome would go from master of the world to being plunged into a crisis that nearly destroyed the empire and from which it would never fully recover. So how could such a powerful empire experience such a collapse in a relatively short period of time? And the answer lies in this simple silver coin. Known as the denarius, these coins were originally made of 99% pure silver and were usually worth around a day's wages for a skilled laborer. But with the rise of the empire, Rome's new rulers ran into a problem. With a limited supply of gold and silver flowing into the empire, how could the latest palace, amphitheater, coliseum, or war be paid for? An emperor's rule usually rested on the ability to provide the people with either bread and circuses or score victories on the battlefield, meaning that these pet projects often took priority over all other economic considerations. The emperors found a way to work around this, however, by lowering the silver content of the denarius and replacing it with cheaper metals. They were then able to mint more coins with the same face value. And with more coins seemingly being created out of thin air, the state could spend more money. And so the value of the denarius steadily declined as one emperor after another debased the currency. By the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the denarius had dropped to less than 80% silver. And just 40 years later, it had fallen to 50%. 
By 270 AD, the denarius was rendered virtually worthless with a silver content of less than 3%. Inflation skyrocketed across the empire, topping a staggering 1,000% in some cases. Rome was plunged into a catastrophe known as the crisis of the third century, as its emperors found it nearly impossible to pay for even the most basic functions of government, let alone their personal pet projects. Trade completely collapsed. The army routinely murdered their emperors because of mispayments, while the empire was shattered into three pieces as German and Persian invasions went unchecked. Rome's economic and military power would never be fully restored, and in less than two centuries, the empire itself would finally come to an end. The story of Rome's economic collapse teaches us that the consequences of inflation are not always immediate. And it's this delay that can make inflation so dangerous. Because those who mint, or today, those who print the money first, get nearly the full value of it before its inflationary effects are felt throughout the rest of the economy. But while the emperors use this to base currency to fund new projects and military campaigns in the short run, not even the might of Rome could save them from the consequences of undermining one of the most critical features of a strong economy, a reliable medium of exchange. Um, so yeah, that is one of the, the eat your heart out, Edward Gibbon. That's the reason that the, <laughs> um, that's the, that's the reason that the Roman empire ended up collapsing. Um, yeah, you're going to find we're not huge fans of Gibbon around here. <laughs> Hamilton, I send a, uh, I sent a link that, um, I, I'd love for you to bring up because I think this actually shows even better than this chart from, uh, visual capitalist, why, the empire went into an economic crisis. It's even starker than the original chart that, that Nick was uh, reading off from that site, which by the way, um, we should probably get through that in a second because there's some interesting stuff in there. But this is really fascinating. This actually shows a chart. I'm gonna try to explain it for our audio listeners only. This shows the state of the denarius over time, actually going back to 150 BC. And what you see is during the Republican era, the denarius was like effectively a hundred percent silver, a yeah. hundred to 90% silver, depending on what was going on. You see a little bit of debasement during the crisis period in the, in the last half century, you know, when they were constantly in civil wars, we talked about that in, in part one. And um, it also shows many different coins that were minted during these different time periods. And you can actually see the, the poor quality of them near the end where it's obvious that they're not made of any silver. They're made of like bronze or, or copper or tin. And, Again, what you see is after the empire gets established, which is almost almost 1 AD, right? It's 27 BC. Yeah. After the empire gets established, the first 100 years, everything's going relatively fine. And then what you see is between 100 AD and 200 AD, you see a steady erosion from what is basically like 93% silver down to 73% silver. And then what you see after the year 200 is within, I mean, within like 30 years, it drops from like 75% silver to less than 50% silver. And it's at that point that the crisis of the third century kicks off officially. Like some people try to extrapolate it out and say the crisis of the third century actually is the long third century. It starts in, you know, 193, 192 when Commodus is killed and, you know, they're starting to auction off the office of the emperor yeah. and stuff like that. But Officially, historians trace it to the death of um, Alexander Severus, who's the last of the Severans. The Severans get deposed and then they come back. And um, when Alexander's killed, he's relatively young. That's when it's usually historically 
you know, the, the consensus is when the crisis of the third century kicks off. But I would argue that Rome was already in a crisis up to that point in yeah. time. And it was an economic crisis that became a political crisis because, again, I, trade collapsed and people's money were worthless and the legions knew it. Yeah. That's the important part. There's this guy named Caracalla that comes along. The legions knew their money was worthless. And so what did they do? They demanded more payment because they knew that they needed double the wages of what their fathers were making or their grandfathers were making just in order to make ends meet. And if the emperor was not willing to give them that money, they would just kill him and find someone else that would pay them. And so what happened was is that the empire's economy became heavily militarized. It wasn't about the tra the transfer of like goods and services to fuel the growth of cities like Rome to a million plus people. Instead, it was simply, can we pump more money into the military to maintain political control? If you go to the well, can I say one other thing on that? That's that's yeah. kind of interesting. Is that this is this chart? I, I think is really important to understand kind of where we are within the United States. Caracalla was also the emperor to grant like universal citizenship within Rome, and, and, and until that, there was conditions to Roman citizenship, but there were also benefits to it. And it it, it was almost as if the the universal granting had problems um, that you could argue may or may not have been anticipated. But what, what's important to understand here is. Even after the fall of the Republic and the Roman Empire, as Christian pointed out, you still have some stability within the coinage. And I would say you also have some stability within the culture. This, this is the important thing to understand is like there's this idea that once a, once a centralized power takes over, that's it, we're all screwed. Well, it can be that way, especially if you have really bad management. But one of the things that we talk about a lot about understanding the, the nature of, of political power is that if you have someone that's actually a relatively good manager, you, you can have you know, relative amounts of, of economic and, and freedom without having a great deal of political freedom. Singapore is actually a pretty good example of this. Singapore cracks down hard. You spit on the street in Singapore, you're getting caned, right? Like it's, someone's probably going to correct me like, that's not true anymore. But they, they, it has been essentially one party rule in Singapore for a great deal of time. However, it's also one of the most economically free countries in the world. Now, am I suggesting that you know, political freedom isn't, isn't valuable. No, not at all. I think political freedom is incredibly valuable, but I think it's important to understand that you actually have to have a culture. If you want long, if you want long standing peace, prosperity, and security, there's an economic aspect to that. There's a political aspect to that, but there's also a cultural aspect to that. People actually have to feel like there's some sort of shared understanding, both of the past and the present and where you're going in the future. And your culturally shaping institutions are critical to all of that. Well, again, if you look at the the shaping institutions within the Roman empire, if you look at the currency, if you look at what was going on with the military, all of a sudden you find yourself where it, it's not hard to understand why you have this, this debasement of Roman currency over time. Just like we said before, right? The Gracchi brothers weren't trying to overthrow the Roman Republic. They thought land reforms were necessary, but they were willing to use mob violence to achieve their ends. Marcus or, or, or um, um, Marius wasn't trying to create a situation where Roman armies essentially did whatever their generals could in order to consolidate power and get larger donatives. He was trying to come up with it. He was trying to deal with some massive poverty issues at the same time that he was also trying to deal with an ever expanding Roman empire that required greater military force. Sulla was not trying to create a situation where anybody could march into Rome at the head of a legion and be in power. He was actually trying to save the Republic. 
He, he, he instituted all kinds of legal reforms in order to try to ensure that nobody could do what he did. But once you set a legal, economic, or cultural precedent, and I'm not talking about a, a blip on the radar, once you depart with something that used to be in our minds sacred, and I don't mean theological, I just mean sacred, like a line you don't cross. Once you start crossing those lines, it becomes easier and easier to do because everyone else starts asking the question, well, if they did it, why can't I? And then what ends up happening over time is that it's no longer a question of, well, I don't want to cross that line, but maybe it's going to be beneficial. Now, all of a sudden, society becomes fractured in such a way to where you will pick a side for your survival. And when that side crosses the line, you don't say, hey guys, I don't think this is a good idea because now they'll kick you out for being a traitor. If, if people want to wonder why civilizations have just digressed into perpetrating some of the worst atrocities in human history, you don't get there overnight. And a large part of comes from this sort of instability that takes place when governments engage in this sort of behavior and activity. And once you start crossing those lines, again, it starts with, hey, nobody should cross those lines. And if you cross that line, there's going to be a major consequences for it. Then it's like, okay, you crossed the line, but I understand why you crossed the line. And, and you know, maybe, hey, it was kind of necessary. And then it's, okay, I kind of know that line shouldn't be crossed, but there's a lot of benefits for me if I cross the line. And then after a while, it's, you will cross this line because if you don't, we'll kick you out of the group and no one will protect you. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on in the empire. You, you think there was, I am positive there were Roman generals, there were Roman officers, because you see this in Roman history. The people who want to say, like, this is wrong. We shouldn't do this. But at some point, if you're the one person wants, that, that says no and the rest of the legion says yes, they actually had legions that took their generals, took their generals and said, you're going to be emperor. I don't want to be emperor. I don't, I, I don't want to stand against the emperor. You're going to be emperor or we're going to murder you. Think about that for a moment. That was not a Roman general that was necessarily attempting to consolidate power because they desperately wanted to be emperor. But if their legion comes in and says, you're going to be emperor, not necessarily because they think it's, he's the best guy to be emperor, but because he's their guy and they're going to get paid. Well, now you have a pretty hard decision to make, don't you? Because this isn't just about, I'm going to stand on a moral principle and I'm not going to do this. No, no, you're going to do it. Or you're going to die. This is what was happening. Um, if you go back to the uh, visual capitalist, there's there's a really interesting quote here. If you scroll down, so so we talked about the debasement. This is an interesting chart showing again the decline, the the silver line, the decline in the value of the denarius, and then the red line showing the increase in wages over time. Um, for our audio listeners, what you see is is that wages go from basically they triple. In the span of of a hundred ish years, yeah, and eventually, like I said, the economy becomes militarized because the only people that the emperors are, are being forced to shovel money to is the legions in order to stay in power. And if you scroll down, when the Severans come in charge, they're like the opposite of the of of Vespasian and yeah. the Flavian dynasty because the Flavians also came to power in a civil war, but. They encouraged trade and commerce and they built things. They constructed, you know, again, the, the Flavian Amphitheater, the Colosseum. They they presided over a, a, an era of peace and prosperity until finally Domitian was killed. Um, but the Severans are the opposite. 
The Severans don't care about maintaining the, the wealth of Rome. They care about maintaining their own personal power. And I remember when I got to the Severan dynasty, this was when I was listening to the History of Rome podcast by Mike Duncan for the first time. I didn't know anything about the Severans. I barely knew anything about the Flavians. And so this was new stuff to me. I did not know about the, the, the midpoint, later point of the Roman Empire. And when I got to them, I was like, these guys suck. And then I figured out why they suck so much. And this quote by Caracalla really encapsulates why they suck. When I showed Nick this before we started recording, he bursted out laughing. Here's the quote. Nobody should have any money but I, so that I may bestow it upon the soldier. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that as the guiding principle for your government right there in terms of how to manage the economy. Well, and it's not hard to see. And we're going we're gonna to talk about now about the crisis of the third century. So this is... Um, and somebody brought up something interesting here. Uh, HTRSP Super said, uh, I think it's continue, things continue to get worse. More people would probably take it in a barter situation. Interesting you say that. Uh, so here's the crisis of the third century. You have Maximus. So you have uh, Severus Alexander is lynched by a mutinous troops. So again, uh, Elagabalus. I always script that guy's name. Elagabalus. Elagabalus, arguably, I would say the, the worst emperor in Roman history, he he would be he would be my top. Didn't he? Ha he had like a bunch of orgies and he oh tried to gosh. create a new religion. Yeah, and he was murdered by the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> that might have been a good call. <laughs> and then, and then his uh, Severus Alexander takes over. He rules for thirteen years, and then he's actually lynched by uh, mutinous troops. And then here's what ends up happening. Now I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through this. We're gonna go through this quick, but you need to see it. So Maximus Thrax he rules for three years and three months. Gordian the first rules for 22 days. Gordian the second 22 days. Uh, Papainus 99 days. Bob Balbinus. <laughs> That sounds like something off of Monty Python thing. 99 days. Gordian III five years and six months. Philip the first uh, five years uh, eight months. Uh, Philip the younger two years two months. Decius one year. Uh, uh, Etruscus, less than a month. Uh, uh, Trebonius Gallus, two years, two months. Uh, Hostilian, one month. Uh, Volusianus, two years. Uh, Emilianus, two months. Uh, Silibanacus, very briefly. That's what it says here. Valerian, six years, nine months. And then Gallienus, 15 years. So think about all the different emperors I just read off that were ruling for like less than two years. And imagine just the complete... <sighs> the complete unrest with respect to your system of government and never quite knowing what's going to going to happen next as a result of this. The, the average emperor ruled for less than two years yeah. during this time period. Fun fact, um, uh, Valerian is the only Roman emperor to be captured in battle. He was captured by Shapur, the, I think it was Shapur the Great of the Sassanid Empire, which yeah. had recently replaced the Parthians as the new Persian superpower, the, the chief rival to Rome in the east. And Valerian fought a war with the Persians. This is another thing, too. Wars pop up because Rome's neighbors realize that the that, that they're weak. And so the Germanic tribes start invading. The Persians start invading, sacking cities. The Romans try to respond, and they get crushed at the Battle of Edessa. It's like four legions get annihilated, like completely wiped out. It's like yeah. worse than, than the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest. It's so bad, it doesn't even appear in Roman histories. They try to, yeah. like, ignore it. And... um. Yeah, Valerian kind of, he kind of got what was coming well, to him. And, and, if, and if you look at how these, so I just read off all those emperors, right? Now I'm going to read off very quickly how they died. <laughs> all right. 
Maximus murdered by his men. His son, uh, or uh, Gordian the first, uh, committed suicide upon hearing the death of his son. Gordian the second, uh, shortest reigning emperor, killed outside Carthage in battle against army loyal to Maximus. Uh, next one, tortured and murdered by the Praetorian Guard. Tortured and murdered by the Praetorian Guard. Died during campaign against Persia, possibly in a murder plot. <laughs> killed at the Battle of Verona. Murdered by the Praetorian Guard. Killed at the Battle of uh, Arbitus against the Goths. Killed at the Battle of Arbitus alongside his father. Murdered by his own troops. <laughs> Died of plague or murdered by uh, Trebonius Gallus. Murdered by the soldiers alongside his father. Murdered by his own troops in favor of Valerian. Um, captured at Edessa by Persian King Sharper I. That's his Valerian. Died in cap captivity, possibly forced to swallow molten gold. Um, I mean, this is... And then Gallienus, right? 15 years. So we get through all of that. We get a guy for 15 years. Faced multiple revolts and barbarian invasions. Murdered in a conspiracy of armor officers involving Claudius II and Aurelian. Um, next guy. Murdered by troops. Loyal to Posthumus. Uh, died of plague. Committed suicide or killed at the Battle of Aurelian. Uh, reunified the Roman Empire. Murdered by the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> like This is just like... <sighs> this is what we're talking about. And, and I, I kind of want to go to the next, um, why? Well, yeah, let's go to the next. Uh, so I sent Hamilton a chart that I actually made myself uh -huh. um, a few years ago that I think is really interesting. And this visually gets across uh, kind of what Nick brought up. Uh, Hamilton, if you want to bring it up uh, back when I had my own, second. no problem. Uh, back when I was doing my podcast, which I'll probably try to bring back at some point, my history podcast, I was really interested in the fate of Roman and Persian emperors. Yeah. And so I, um, I created a pie chart showing the causes of death of <laughs> Roman emperors Yeah. and the result. And, and it, I, I ran it from 14 AD when Augustus died to 395 AD when the empire was permanently split after Theodosius, who was the last emperor of both the East and West. And um, Hamilton, could you pull it up? I, I need 30 seconds. Okay. okay. So what I found was, is that take a guess how many emperors were assassinated versus died of natural causes. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to say, so assassinated. I'm going to say... Uh, close. It was 23. 23 were assassinated? It was, it was close, though. 20 died of natural causes. I thought, wait a second. Are we... Okay, okay. But there's more than... there's. So there's more that were possibly assassinated that we don't know for uh, Okay, all right. So, oh, well, and that's then there's good... killed in battle, and then there's executed. There's died in captivity, Valerian being the one outlier. Yeah. There's one unknown that we have no clue what happened to. There were five that died by suicide, including Nero. Yeah. Um. And so... What this pie chart shows, yeah, here it is. Okay, yeah. What this pie chart shows is, is that being Roman emperor was alongside being a Parthian and eventually a Sassanid emperor. Okay, in my, the most dangerous occupation in the entire ancient world was to be emperor of Rome. <laughs> well, okay. In my, in my, um, in my defense, assassinated and possibly assassinated goes to 41 and I guess 40. So I'm giving myself, I'm giving myself. No, no, you credit. get an A. You definitely get an A on that. <laughs> I, that's incredible, though, that a third of all Roman emperors confirmed assassinated. Yeah. More than even died of natural cut. You were more, statistically, you were more likely to be murdered yeah. than you were to die of natural causes as a Roman emperor. Again, the most dangerous 
job that you could possibly be in the ancient world was to be emperor of the most powerful superpower in the entire world at that point in time. So anyway, I think that we've gone through the inflation thing uh, enough. By the way, there's this guy that comes along during the crisis of the third century. If you want to bring up the Wikipedia link for the crisis of the third century, go back Hamilton right there. Um, by the way, there was somebody in the chat that was like, do we really need to bring up Wikipedia? They're super biased. As a former Wikipedia editor, I have 20,000 edits under yeah. my belt, mostly about the Austrian Navy, but Nerd. I know. <laughs> I agree with you that Wikipedia sucks when it comes to anything political. Yeah. The reason that we're bringing this up is for simplicity's sake, not because guess what? This is a lot easier to bring up and walk people through yes. than some deep white paper published on JSTOR. Yeah. You know, that talks about, well, we examined the silver content of 35 coins discovered along the, the banks of the Euphrates River dating to the reign yeah, of hate. Yeah. Like, Wikipedia, look, <laughs> you just got to appreciate Wikipedia for what it's good for and understand the, the drawbacks. But when it comes to summarizing a particular topic in a way that kind of gets to the point of what you're trying to do, because here's the deal. Like, it's not like we go to Wikipedia and be like, well, I guess this is what happened. Like, we, we will actually read the Wikipedia articles and then judge it based off of what we know of that particular period, what we've read. Well, also check the references. And, and to Christian's point, yeah, if, if you're doing politics, uh, it's pretty bad. Now, I will say this, in some areas, uh, even on history, it's gotten increasingly bad. Um, but uh, again, we don't, we can differentiate between, you know, what actually happened and what Wikipedia says happened. But when they do have, when they do have a good summary of something, we like to use them. So again, the reason we're bringing this up is, is more for the map, actually, of anything else. What happens is, is that after Alexander Severus dies, it is full-blown crisis mode. The empire actually gets shattered into three parts. Paul Myring and Egypt try to break off and form their own independent state with the help of the Persians in the east. Yeah, in the, the west, you have the Gaelic Empire, which briefly included Spain as well. And then even though Spain was eventually reincorporated for like a generation, it was Gaul and, and Britannia that were separate from the rest of the empire. And then there was this guy that came along named Aurelian who gets a, not enough credit. Not even close. Not only does he militarily piece the empire back together, he wages campaigns in both east and west to reunite the entire empire under one one nation state. He also does something that I don't think he gets near. He actually gets a decent amount of credit for the military stuff, but he does not get nearly enough credit for trying to reform the currency. Yeah. He actually tries to revalue the denarius and increase its silver content at great expense to do so because you got to understand as, as the government, you're making money out of thin air when you debase it. So what do you do when you increase the silver content? You're pulling money out of the system. You're actually impoverishing the government by doing that. This is the ancient Rome equivalent of quantitative tightening, mm -hmm. the opposite of QE, which we've talked about so many times before on this podcast. This is what the Federal Reserve is currently doing. And we've seen the economic stress that it's placed on the federal government to try to fight inflation by selling off assets on their balance sheet and limiting the, the, the printing of new money. And not buying treasury bonds, it's sending and interest rates is, up. And when so, and when somebody does something like this in order to try to stabilize the currency, this is when the Elizabeth Warrens of the world stand up and be like, "I can't believe the emperor hates poor people." Like, no, Senator Karen, it's not that he hates poor people; it's that this has to be done in order to stabilize your currency, or else you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So, take a guess, Nick. You're not allowed to answer this because you know. Take a guess what happened to Aurelian. What? what? What do you think happened to Aurelian? <laughs> Comment section. You want to take a guess? If you're listening in the car, just we'll, we'll give you like five seconds to take a guess what happened to Aurelian. Ready? Five, four, three, two, one. Nick, give it away. He was murdered by the Praetorian Guard. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it turn, turns out they didn't like anybody cutting into their donatives. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 will, I, will, I will say this much, and this is probably kind of a bold statement. I actually think Aurelian deserves credit for probably being, I think, pound for pound, because I, I it, it's, let's face it, it, it's easier to rule in times of peace, right? It's easier to rule in times of, of prosperity. He, he's ruling at a, any time of just complete unrest, um, the empire's breaking apart. Um, you're you're having to manage all of these backstabbing political alliances, at the same time that you have genuine military threats that that now really are posing a, a genuine threat, existential threat to what we think of as the Roman Empire. And and he he defeats it all in five years. Um, not to mention the fact that he's got the right idea going forward with respect to what needs to be done to stabilize. Um, the, the country. So of course he's murdered <laughs> and, um, and, and it doesn't get better from there after a, a Aurelian. So Aurelian ruled for five years, five months, then uh, Tacitus comes in seven months, uh, Florianus uh, 88 days. And then Probus comes in for six years and three months. Guess what happens to him? Murdered, Mur- murdered by his own troops. Karis comes in 10 months, um, died in Persia. Um, they think he might've actually been hit by lightning. And then Carinus uh, two years, and then Numerian one year, and 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 then, then we get into Diocletian, and there's so many people that think he Di- saved the Roman Empire. Saved dude. the Roman Empire, ruled for twenty years. He's the one that came up with the the Tetrarchy, where he, he broke down the Roman Empire into five different, um, you know, regions essentially. Where, it, it, and then the whole goal of this was to try to create a peaceful mechanism. Um, a peaceful mechanism for the transition of power within the Roman empire. And, and I think the reason why people give him, um, people try to give him a, a lot of people give him a lot of credit is because he did create some degree of stability. The other thing that I don't think people understand is one, he began the last great persecution of Christians. Uh, he was the first emperor to voluntarily abdicate power. So that's something, but he also, and in fact, Christian, I'm going to let you talk about this because I, I think you, I remember when you first said this, I was like, eh, and then I looked at it and I'm like, nah, Christian's right. Uh, so there you go. You, oh, I, he, I, uh, he's, yeah. he's the man that basically ushers in the beginning of feudalism and serfdom and, so, and controls the flow of, of money and goods. And I mean, his, his edict on the maxim of prices is, is straight up price controls and, and yeah. it creates shortages and, his response to the, again, the economic crisis that had begun well before, you know, centuries before he came along, his response was, well, see, what we really need is just more government control over the economy. Yeah. And so, like, when he wasn't busy murdering Christians left and right. <laughs> um, We're a little bitter about that here. I'm or planning his retirement on a, a cabbage plantation. Yeah. Um, Diocletian was, was busy trying to basically micromanage the economy. And the response what's incredible is so many historians look at Diocletian and they say, this guy, again, he saved the Roman empire. No, Aurelian saved the Roman empire. It simply took until Diocletian came along for them to realize that the crisis of the, of the third century was actually over. Not that Rome had fully recovered, but it wasn't yeah. on the verge of collapse anymore. But the problem is that in many respects, Diocletian kills off the spirit of what the whole, there once was a dream, yeah. a dream that was Rome. He's the guy that kills it because Rome had markets, Rome had free movement of people, Rome had 
law and order, but it did not have complete government control over everything, even under the emperorship. Diocletian is the man who puts an end to the pretense that Rome is a republic still. He puts an end to the principate, and he establishes what we call the dominate. It's no longer first among equals. The emperor is the emperor. He's your lord and master. Those those are actually like titles that he introduces. And not only that, it's not just that he formalizes political power in his own hands, but it's that he uses that formalized political power to tear apart the social fabric of Roman, uh, 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 really the, 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 the socioeconomic status of the Roman state and introduce what, what would appropriately be called like proto-feudalism, proto-serfdom. He's the guy that tells people you're going to have this job and it was the job that your father had. That that is something that I don't think people fully appreciate is that it he also it's funny somebody in the comments was talking about barter system. He's also someone that realized that the, the currency had been so debased and there was such a problem with it is that he was allowing certain regions and areas, I believe, to pay taxes in the form of just like goods and services. Uh, so it, it he did bring in almost more of a barter system in, in some ways. And then I think the other that's the other part that people don't understand. Like we're not talking about manipulating the economy in such a way that he was giving tax breaks to his favorite wool dyer, right? Like we're talking about telling everyone in the empire, Hey, what's your dad's job? That's your job now too. Like you were legally not permitted to seek employment outside of the family business. Um, and, and this is the part where when, when you got to look at some of this and be like, give me a break, man, how are we holding this guy up as, as a, and again, I think it's just because I think historians have an affinity for strong men, um, within society. And so when, when strong men do great things like, Oh, he saved the empire. Okay. But did you, did you take a look at how he did it? And do you think maybe there, there might've been a different way that we could have, we could have done this. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's the, the one thing I will get him he did, um, what is it? he did restore the three metal coinage, um, and, and issued better quality pieces. So he, he did do some of that. Um, but, Again, the, the edict on, I'll, I'll read this out. The edict on the maximus, uh, maximum prices was issued two to three months after coinage, the coinage edict, somewhere between 20 November and 10 December 301, the best preserved Latin inscription surviving from the Greek East. The edict survives in many versions on the blah, 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 blah. Come on. Uh, in the most basic terms, the edict was ignorant of the law of supply and demand. It ignored the fact that prices might vary from region to region according to product availability, and it ignored the impact of transportation costs and the retail price of goods. In the judgment of the historian David Potter, the edict was an act of economic lunacy. The fact that the edict began with a long rhetorical preamble betrays at the same time a moralizing stance as well as a weak grasp of economics, perhaps simply the wishful thinking that criminalizing a practice was enough to stop it. There's no consensus about how effectively the edict was enforced. So this is what I want you to, again, understand, because we, we have this now. We have politicians now that think, well, the solution is to just tell companies they can't charge that much. Or, or we need to come in and the, and the government needs to fix the price of X. Fixing the price of X. All right, the government's saying legally you cannot buy a product except for a certain amount is almost always done as a result of a public outcry at increasing prices. And then politicians, again, this is where people like Senator Elizabeth Warren come into play, right? They, they were AOC. They love to come out and say, oh yeah, the real problem here is these greedy corporations that are charging you too much for bread. Instead of asking important underlying questions like, hey, why is the supply of bread so low that people selling bread can charge so much and get away with it? 
Because if you just come in and say, you're not allowed to charge that much anymore. And again, he didn't just do this in like Rome. He did it throughout the entire empire. So no, no idea that the, well, gosh, the price of bread in, I don't know, a mountain community in central Italy might be a little bit more than say, I don't know where the wheat is being grown. Like this is something you would expect somebody ruling a multinational empire of a hundred plus million people that somebody at some point said, Hey, you know what? I don't know. I don't know if you know this, but, um, when you have a product that is based off of a particular commodity or service, um, the place where that particular commodity or service is provided, like let's say the wheat for the bread you're going to eat is usually cheaper right there where the wheat is manufactured as opposed to the place 2000 miles away where you've got to put the wheat on a ship and then transport it 2000 miles to the other side of the Mediterranean, right? That that's going to have some impact on the price of the end product. But nope, nope. He just said, hey, I'm emperor. I can do this. And what does that result in? Well, if you're going to get in trouble, if you're going to get in trouble for buying something you need or selling something you need at the only price you can afford to sell that, you either stop doing it or you create a black market or you create a barter system. And lo and behold, guess what happened with Diocletian's edict? You created black markets. You created illegal activities out of things that shouldn't have never been illegal. And you created more barter systems because there was no effective way to either enforce this and there was no effective way to actually build an economy around this. And, and what's so important to understand is that to today you have politicians in the United States telling people that the real, well, gosh, the real cure is like, you know, uh, what's the, uh, the most common example, um, um, of price fixing, uh, rent controls, Rent controls. Oh, gosh, the only way to stop the, the exorbitant cost of housing in a place like New York City is rent controls. No, that's how you create slums. That's how you create slums. This is still an ongoing thing, by the way. I remember reading an article just a few days ago that Macron in France is asking oil companies to sell oil at cost. Yeah. I'll just provide a service without any ability to make a profit off of it. What? Out of the goodness of your own heart? Yeah. How Like... like this idea that that politicians can just tell businesses provide your service for free or at cost and make no money off of doing it and and run a charity how are you going to keep the lights on doing that yeah the reason that goods and services are provided to the marketplace in the first place is because the person providing those goods and services thinks that they will benefit off of it well and can I can we also point something that's not out? bad either no it's not a bad thing can we also point something else out here when you say provide something at cost, what you're saying, what they what they usually mean by this, what idiots like Macron mean by this is, well, provide it at the cost of, we get it. You had to pay for it and you got to pay your people and you got to have a salary. So, oh, okay, whatever you paid for it, sell it to us for that amount. Okay, until it comes time to actually resupply. And now the price of the original thing I bought went up. They're like, well, yeah, you can raise your prices. Yeah, but unfortunately, I don't have any existing capital because I'm selling you things that cost. Do you get how that works? Like, I'm not able to actually build up a store of resources for initial investment or for expansion or for buying the same product that I need, even though the price of it has gone up significantly. I'm not, I can't do that anymore. Now I got to go get a loan to do it, right? And now I got to pay interest on the loan. So now the cost of providing you something went up because I got to borrow money to get the same thing that I got before, right? The, the barrel of oil that I got from my, the, the Saudis is more expensive now, but I don't have excess profits and be able to, uh, you know, accommodate for that. So I got to borrow money in order to buy it in the interim. 
And now the price goes up again because of the interest rates. Like, mm, I can't stand politicians. So then there's a second. <laughs> I, this is unfortunately going to be a little bit longer, but we're going to try to get through this in what, maybe 30 minutes or so? Because yeah. there's another part of this. We've talked about inflation. We've talked about some price fixing. We talked about some terrible, terrible economic policies of many of these Roman emperors for for centuries and how this almost destroyed the empire, but it didn't quite. Yeah. There's something else that comes along in a couple hundred years that does. In the meantime, there's this guy that comes along. You might have heard of him. His name is Constantine. He He's the guy that not just legalizes Christianity, he eventually becomes baptized and, and adopts Christianity himself. And then eventually... A couple, um, within a few generations of Constantine, Christianity becomes the state religion of the empire. And so there's this transition phase where in the fourth century, once you get into the 300s, the Roman Empire transitions from being a pagan society built around the cult of the emperors and the worship of the Greco-Roman pantheon to becoming a Christian empire. And this is also around the time that Rome actually does permanently go into decline, which is what fed into Edward Gibbon's thesis that Christianity caused the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. We've tried to push back against some of that in this episode. We're going to finish by pushing back against it by explaining, no, what really caused the final collapse of the empire was poor economic policy, debasement of currency, and finally, the mass invasion from barbarians. And... This is, by the way, a phrase the Romans themselves described. It's The, the term barbarian just meant non-Roman. Um, so, Hamilton, we've actually got an uh, a animated map uh, that Nick found um, that's really great, that, that goes and shows this, this process of by the time you get to within a century or so of, of um, Aurelian, so a century after the crisis of the third century, you get into the mid to late 300s AD, the empire really starts to kind of fall apart here. There's a permanent division. Um, Theodosius comes along. He's the last emperor of both East and West, and then his sons um, inherit one half or the other. What you notice is, is that the East is able to defend itself a little bit more because it's still economically more prosperous than the West. The West has a much longer border with, with the Germanic tribes along the Rhine and Danube that it has to defend. The East has to defend against the Sassanids, which is a really big issue. And long-term, it becomes such a big issue that it destroys both empires, actually. But in the West, they have a much greater problem on their hands, which is the mass migration of millions of people pouring across the Rhine River and the Danube River into the empire, and there's just no way to check it. Um, Nick, do you want to do you want to talk about this this whole process, the mass invasion? We talked about this yeah. actually before the empire because it wasn't just immigration yeah, that destroyed yeah. the empire; it was a speci specific type of immigration. So again, we we've we've talked a lot about conditions and catalyst, right? So you have these conditions over time where now they're. Roman culture is kind of broken down. That's where you actually see Roman legions, Roman generals, Roman people in different parts of the empire starting to break off the, you know, the Gaelic empire, the Palmyrian empire. You're starting, you're starting to see fractures, significant fractures within the consistency of the, the Roman empire. You're seeing deflation, which, or excuse me, you're seeing um, massive inflation and debasement of the currency. You're seeing uh, the military in a position where now they have an inordinate role in selecting who the chief executive of the empire will be. Um, you see someone like Diocletian that is, is broken up now the empire into five different regions that eventually goes into two different regions. So you have all these things going on at the same time that you have increasing threats from what they refer to 
referred to as barbarian um, civilization or barbarian societies. So let's go ahead and we, we got a video here that we're going to show and we're going to kind of kind of like the last one. This is a map. And for those who are listening, we're going to go through and explain what's going on here. But go ahead and hit play. Um, this starts, uh, this is called the Barbarian Invasions and the Fall of the Western Roman Empire. Um, all right, this is from Costa MLS. All right, pause right here. So it starts at 370, uh, 370. And it shows you a map of the Roman Empire. It shows you the Roman Empire. It shows you the what they call the, uh, uh, I always, again, I always screw up the pronunciations, the uh, uh, Federati of the Romans. And they've, they've got it listed as the uh, Salaean Franks. Uh, a way to think about the Federati is you, you have these um, tribal entities that maintained a certain level of autonomy or, or unity within the empire, but had a direct alliance um, with the empire and, and oftentimes made up a significant portion of their troops. And then 372 is also showing the beginning of the Hunnic empire, um, which is kind of more over in like the Northern, actually <laughs> kind of in the area of, of Russia bordering in on, on Ukraine. Um, so that gives you an idea of where we're at. Then you have the, the Visigoths, which are, are again, are originally like a Germanic and, and I think some people say a Nordic uh, peoples. It, it's fascinating how many of these tribes are, are either Eastern um, or Germanic or Nordic um, in, in their um, kind of their, their, their background. So you've got the Visigoths, which are in what you would call, what you look at as kind of like current, like Romania. Um, area. Then you've got the uh, Alamanni, which had been someone that had, had fought with and against Rome for, I mean, forever. Then you have the Franks, you have the Saxons, uh, you have the Slavs, you have the Vandals. The Vandals is another one to watch because on this map, the Vandals are actually in, in like Germany, kind of where like Bohemia is, right? So in kind of central slash Eastern Germany. And it's fascinating how many of these, um, how many of these tribes, again, their lineage goes back to Eastern Germany and, and Nordic countries like Sweden, uh, Denmark, et cetera. All right. So go ahead. Oh, and, and also the Burgundians too. Oh, and the Burgundians as well. Yeah. Um, so go ahead and hit 372, go ahead and hit play. And what it's showing is, as the Huns are, are moving across, um, a couple of things are happening. Hit pause right there. 378, you have the bottle battle of Adrianople. This is massive. A Roman emperor is killed at this battle. Um, What's happening is the Huns are moving in from the east and they're pushing the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths. And people are like, what's the difference between the Ostrogoths and Visigoths? East and west. That's that's the difference. Um, but it's pushing these Germanic tribes out of kind of um, like the area of Romania into the Roman Empire. So they're they're fleeing the Huns. And this was this was a common thing. A lot of times when you have these massive um, you know, tribal incursions into Rome, it's because they were fleeing another tribe that was essentially driving them off their land. And this is one of these areas where you had some really, really bad diplomacy between Roman commanders, the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths. Um, originally, it was fighting and the Visigoths conducted, you know, regular raids into um, the Roman Empire all around that that area of, um, again, kind of modern day Turkey, Greece. And by Turkey, I don't mean Anatolia. I mean the European portion of Turkey. Bulgaria as Bulgaria, well. Bulgaria, yeah, Romania. Th these are all the modern day names of these countries. So you're starting to see these massive, um, you know, again, barbarian incursions in into the Roman Empire and the Romans are, are starting to get, <laughs> their butts handed to him by him. Go ahead and hit play. By the way, it's worth noting the Battle of Adrianople is fought almost a century before the fall of the Western Empire. This is a yeah. long process. Yeah. Almost a hundred years. Yeah. So 
you start to see the, the Romans are able to push back. And so now what you see is this again. So before when I talked about the Federati, right, these, these tribal contingents that had some degree of autonomy, but had struck a deal with the Romans usually to provide troops for the Roman armies because Roman, the Roman military at this point is becoming more and more dependent upon mercenary troops. And so now you've seen the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths going from, you know, tribes that were invading Rome to now they're kind of worked into the overall Roman structure, but they're still kind of keeping that, you know, a, a autonomous area that they control, right? It's not this idea where they're, okay, you're, you're allowed to immigrate into the Roman empire and then they disperse between, you know, various areas. No, they're still largely concentrated in one particular area and they're being used almost as kind of like a buffer state between the Huns and, and other uh, tribes versus them. Uh, you're also starting to see the Huns, uh, approach closer this and closer. This is also when the empire gets permanently divided between east and west yeah. as well. Three, yeah, the three nineties. Okay, go ahead and play. And yeah, what you're starting to see now is the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths are starting to move um, further and further west. Um, what you're eventually, uh, I'll, I'll wait till we get there before I t explain this. But Britain is abandoned in the early 400s, like yeah. permanently abandoned. Pause. You're yeah. Now it's when everything starts to fall apart here. Now this is the interesting part. So the Vandals, which were all the way over here in Eastern Germany, um, are now all the way down in the north of Spain and in the south of Spain. So you have various Vandal tribes that have, have moved um, to areas. And, and here's, here's the other thing we really want you to watch on this chart. This is important. Look at the Federati of the Romans, right? You have the Franks, you have the Ostrogoths, you have the Visigoths and you have the Alemanni. So all of these tribes have been moving because the Huns are, are pushing into their area and they're, they're setting up these alliances with the Romans. Well, at the same time, you have these new barbarian kingdoms, which are starting to break away. So you have the Burgundians, um, over there in, uh, around France. Um, then you have the Swaby in Northern Portugal. You have the Vandals in Northern Spain and Southern Spain, and you have the Allens. And again, the Allens did not start off in Southern Portugal. No. Right? And the reason that they were able, I mean, it's like, how did, how did a Germanic tribe end up in Southern Spain? There's this event that takes place called the crossing of the Rhine, not the Rubicon yeah. that takes place on the last day of the year of 406 AD. So just a few years before this. And this is basically the beginning of what's called the migratory period. The crossing of the Rhine is, is when thousands, thousands of, of Germanic tribes literally pour across the Rhine River in, yeah. in late December 406 AD. And the Romans have no, there's just too many. It's, it's like the, the, the legions that are stationed across the Rhine are outnumbered like 10 to 1. And, and by the way, most of these people are not just men of fighting age. They're yeah. whole civilizations moving into the empire and the empire has no ability to like hold the border. And so eventually the Romans just, just let them pass through because what yeah. are they supposed to do? Fight another Adrianople because they tried doing that when, when the, um, Ostrogoths, uh, um, came South and they, um, uh, it, when, when the Visigoths and Ostrogoths came South, when the Huns pushed them into modern day Bulgaria, the Romans basically tried to fight back against them and they got crushed at Adrianople. Again, you brought up that an emperor was killed in that battle. And so when the same thing happened in the West, the, the Western half of the empire was too militarily weak at this point 
to, to do anything to stop this mass migration of, again, entire nations moving into the empire. And so what you see is a transition where historically the Romans were great assimilators. They made other Romans. The yeah. Romans would conquer Gaul and they would make the Gauls Roman. The yeah. Romans would conquer Britain and they would make the Britons Roman. Yeah. It, it, like like they, they did this everywhere they went. And the reason they were able to do it, and by the way, they could do it with Germanic tribes as well. Historically, for hundreds of years, you could cross the Rhine River. It wasn't like there was like some some iron curtain that was constructed along the Rhine River and it was just completely blocked the ability for you to go back and forth. You could travel back and forth between the Germanic tribes on the other side of the river and the Roman Empire on 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 the the western side of the river. But for the Germans that wanted to emigrate into Rome historically, the Romans would allow you to do it, but they would assimilate you. Yeah. And they would they, and, and they the problem that you see in the early 400s is this breakdown of assimilation, the collapse in shared values and culture that you see. It's also worth noting that a lot of these Germanic tribes are Aryan Christian, not Nicene Christian. Mm -hmm. Those are two big differences, yeah. huge theological differences outside of the scope of this podcast, but they share a different religion. They have a different culture, a different language, a, a different history, a different governing style. They're different people. And that wasn't a problem for a long time when Rome could take some every single year and assimilate them into the empire. But there's a difference between taking a few thousand a year and assimilating them into the empire and taking entire nations yeah. moving into the empire. Suddenly you have a nation within a nation. Those are what the Federati are. Well, and, and it's also important to understand that we're at 412 right now. At 410, Alaric, who was the, the leader of the Visigoths at this time, sacked Rome. Now, Rome wasn't the capital of the empire at this point. It was actually Ravenna in northern Italy. But it, it sent such a strong message that this is what led the Romans to basically have to come up with a treaty with the Visigoths because, again, they had been fighting with them. They had been using them as you know troops, and they had broken a lot of promises to the Visigoths. But when they finally sacked Rome in 410, this actually led to a larger treaty that, that again, made them part of the, the Federati of the Romans. Go ahead and hit play. Okay, so, yeah. What you're starting to see right here is the Visigoths. Okay, pause right here. The Visigoths finally did get a deal that the Romans um, held up to. And the Visigoths ended up settling in Aquitaine, which is southern France. So it's it's the western coast of, of France, just north of Spain. Um, it actually ends up playing a major role in the various battles between France and England later on because Aquitaine was actually um, controlled by England for a significant period of time. You also see the Alans expanding their control uh, within Spain at this time as well. And the, uh, the, Ostrogo the Ostrogoths are kind of staying put right around, which is kind of like modern day um, Hungary and, and some of the other um, um, Slavic countries that are going at play. And now we're at 420. This is the part where um, the Vandals, again, an Eastern Germanic tribe, is about to invade North Africa. Um, the Swaby have essentially taken over kind of northern Portugal and uh, northern uh, northwestern Spain. By here, we, it's about to come up. All right, pause. So at 440, the Vandals now have conquered the previous Carthaginian empire. So an, so an empire that had been started by the Phoenicians and then had been ruled by Rome for centuries is now under the control of an Eastern German tribe in North Africa that was <laughs> fleeing like various tribal invasions of their own you know, homeland and slowly immigrated from, you know, central Europe 
into the Iberian Peninsula and now is is controlling North Africa. This The reason why I point some of this out is because it's kind of fascinating to understand how various tribal groups and cultures moved um, within Europe and the Mediterranean area um, as a response to invasions from the east. You know, like the Huns, you'll see the same thing repeated with uh, the Mongols. Um, but, you know, at 440, we're getting to the point where, th- where things are getting really bad. Go ahead and hit play. So the Huns are actually into Germany right now, um, moving into France. This is 447. Keep it in play. The other thing that's interesting here is hit pause again. Now, I, I said at the beginning, we're going to look at the Federati of Rome, right? The Federati were the, you know, it was the Franks, the Van, the Vandals, the Visigoths, all these. Now you look at it again, all of a sudden the Swaby, the Visigoths, they're no longer considered Federati. They're considered their, their own, again, according to the Romans, barbarian kingdoms. Um, go ahead and hit play. All right, I think we missed it. Okay, hit, all right, go ahead and hit pause real quick. Um, there, there is a, a made, the, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains takes place here. What, what's really interesting, the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, is um, the, the Romans are desperate at this point. The Romans are absolutely desperate and uh, essentially, the um, oh gosh, his name just escaped me. The general for uh, the Rome Romans at the Catalonian Plain. Stilicho? No, uh, I don't think. He, I'll look look it up. look it up real quick. It might be Atius. I think it is Atius. Um, so essentially, what happens is the the Roman emperor is incompetent. They're absolutely desperate right now. They they need a win like you cannot believe because the Huns are going into France. I think a lot of people when they think of the Huns, they think of just a step tribe that you know was was fighting around the the boundaries of the Roman Empire in the east. They don't realize that the Battle of the Catalonian Plains takes place in modern day France. That's how far west the Huns had gotten, and they had just devastated. Um, every single, just about every single army that the, the Romans had thrown at them. So at this point, the Catalonian Plains is this, this critical part where if they don't win this, the empire's probably done. And this actually could, could have theoretically changed the whole face of Europe for, for quite some time. But they win this battle because they, they strike up an alliance with, again, some of their old enemies turned allies, turned you know, frenemies turned, turned frenemies and, and they win this major battle. And all of a sudden you see the, the, the Hunnic, uh, advance go, I mean, just disappear overnight, like in a relatively short period of time. This is when Attila the Hun, um, he loses this battle. This is like the only major battle he ever loses. He loses this battle. He's uh, killed, I think in his thirties, he's, he's relatively young. And there, the theory is, is that he was potentially poisoned by, I think, maybe one of his wives or something like that. But, but the, the empire essentially just dissipates after that. And they go from invading France to being pushed all the way, all the way back to kind of that Ukrainian, Ukraine, Russian uh, area today. I mean, uh, it's worth noting that just four years after the battle of the Catalonian plains, despite the fact that the Romans secure a victory, this battle's fought in, in Gaul, modern day France. Just four years later, the Vandals sack Rome. Yeah. So the Vandals, again, who took Carthage, now come, and I think that was Geseric. Uh, yep. Um, yeah. By the way, this is the second time this century that Rome has been sacked. At the yeah. beginning of the century, 410, four years after the crossing of the Rhine, when a lot of these tribes first spilled across the, the Rhine River into Gaul and then finally into Spain and then North Africa. Just four years after that, so Rome was sacked the first time. 
it's worth noting that was the first time in like over 800 or over yeah. 700 years that Rome had been sacked and, and attacked and, and briefly conquered by a foreign power. Yeah. Like it was on her. In fact, it was so devastating to the, the, the confidence of the Roman state that the emperor in the East, the Eastern empire is doing relatively okay. Yeah. They had recovered from Adrianople by this point. Like they declared a state of mourning when they heard about the fact that the, the ancestral capital of the Roman state, even though it had transferred to Constantinople by that point, Rome was still the symbolic center of the Roman empire. When they found out that, that Rome had been sacked, they declared a state of mourning because it, it was, it, it signaled to a lot of people that like, that was the end of an era. Yeah. 800 yeah. years of, of stability being brought to the end. And then within a lifetime of that, just 40 years later, it's sacked again. Yeah. This time by a different Germanic tribe. And by this point, you get to, this is Majorian who comes along at the very end here. And four, in the 450s, Hamilton, if you play it just a little bit more, um, what, what you see is that Rome tries to pull off a recovery play it for just a little bit longer here pause you see that there's a yeah. recovery effort there's emperor comes along majorian who's who's the last of the western emperors that tries to 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 pull it back from the abyss he actually reconquers most of spain from the visigoths he subjugates the visigoths he he reconquers large parts of gaul but he's not able to take back north africa and the cutoff of supply of grain, North Africa was the, the the region that historically supplied Italy with grain. The the loss of grain from North Africa combined with Majoran's uh, desire to reform the military and bureaucracy to root out the corruption and actually like put the Roman state back on track leads to, take a guess, his assassination. <laughs> and he unfortunately is the last of the Roman emperors that actually tries to salvage the yeah. situation. If you play it again, you'll but see that it lingers a little bit longer, but he's the last man that tries to save it. Pause one second. I want to point something out. So, so Adius had not only been a, a great general that, that won the battle of the Catalonian uh, plains, which was critical in saving, you know, Rome at this point, he had also been critical in negotiating the, alliances with like the Visigoths, the Visigoths, Theodoric the first would not have shown up and fought in the Catalonian plains. If it had been anybody other than general Adius, they had actually had a good relationship and they trusted him. They didn't trust Roman leadership, but I, I will say this. Does anybody want to guess? Does anybody want to guess what, what Adius who had at multiple times at this point had saved the empire multiple times at this point, anybody want to guess what his reward was for saving the empire? Yeah. Assassination. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The emperor at the time didn't like how much, how popular he was. And uh, so uh, uh, Valentinian had him assassinated. There's this interesting quote. It says later when Valentinian boasted that he had done well in disposing of Adius, someone at court responded, whether well or not, I do not know, but know that you have cut off your right hand with your left. And, and yeah, that was all too prophetic. The other thing too, you'll notice here at 462, notice how there's no more Federati. And notice how a lot of the countries that were Federati are now their own independent kingdoms. That's not by accident. So go ahead and hit play. Right. And, and then Rome just lingers through yeah. weak emperor after weak emperor. They're only ruling for two or three years. They're, they're like ruling based off of inertia at this point. Yeah. It, like Rome is existing as inertia. It bears no resemblance. Western Roman empire bears no resemblance. The Visigoths now have taken over Southern France, most of Spain. And that's it. And then that's it. And then you have, um, 476 Hamilton yeah. if you want to go back just a second Odorasser. 476 
This or 475 actually for that matter. Pause right here. This is it. This is the final year by 476. Romulus Augustulus. Yeah. Very, very funny that the Western Empire's last leader, you know, was, was named Romulus. Yeah. Um. Sorry about that. Um. By 476, Rome is just the Italian peninsula, parts of Dalmatia, and a little bit of Suisson, which is um. Suisson's is uh, northern, modern day northern France, basically, yeah. like around around the Paris Normandy area. area. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. Everything else is controlled by foreign countries. Oh, In yeah. fact, there's one final map that I, I think is actually it, it's a little bit more clear than this. It's the next link. <laughs> Somebody put the vodka. In Hamilton. It's the, it's, the, it's the link after the barbarian invasions. Other other direction. Give me one moment. <laughs> one it's his mouse, man. Yeah. And Nick and I know how terrible this mouse is. Hamilton has like this mouse like inverted there and it's go. like, yeah, there yeah. we go. And apparently it's good for video editing and nothing else. <laughs> so this is the state of Europe in 476 AD. Yeah. When Odoacer, who's a barbarian general. Yeah deposes Romulus Augustulus and sends the regalia back to Zeno, who's the emperor in the East in yeah. Constantinople. And he basically sends him a note and he's like, here you go. Here's all the artifacts of the Western emperor. We don't need a Western emperor anymore. One will suffice. Oh, but you're not actually going to be ruling us. We're just going to pretend yeah. Yeah. that you're ruling us. Yeah. Kind of like how Texas would like to exist in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it. Or no, actually it'd be a better way to describe how Hungary views the European union. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. Pretty much <laughs> like, and, and that's it. So what you see is, is multiple barbarian kingdoms in the West. You have the Vandals in North Africa again, the, the Visigoths in Spain and Southern France, the Swaby in Northern yeah. Portugal, Northern Spain, the um, kingdom of Odoacer, kingdom of Italy, former core of the Western Roman empire. You have for a brief period, Julius Nepos trying to hold out in Dalmatia until he gets a killed. And then the Ostrogoths have the rest of like modern day Croatia, parts of Hungary. And then you have a, a rump state, again, Suissons, which is still a, a, a proto-Roman rump state. But within 10 years, they get overrun by the Franks, yeah. who established their own empire in, in due time under Charlemagne. And and then you have the Burgundians in modern-day Burgundy and, and uh, Switzerland. And Britannia has been abandoned for you know 70 yeah. years at that point. It's actually a fascinating point of history, too. And this is where you lead to and. and you know, some people classify this as, you know, you're moving into the dark ages and things like that. And what we're starting to find out is that, well, they weren't quite as dark as, as sometimes they're made out to be. But obviously there, there was a, a massive, you know, when, when everything was correct, connected by Roman roads and a Roman currency and a some sort of shared, at least administrative language and things like that, it, it did facilitate greater trade. And then all of a sudden when that was gone and you had a lot more mistrust between these various groups, that was the result. Now, of course, the Eastern Roman Empire lasted until the 1400s and at times it would actually conquer, reconquer um, Italy and North Africa, although it would never get back to the original height of, of the Roman Empire under uh, Trajan or Hadrian. But this is the part where we want to kind of like sum all this up. So again, this is this is kind of like our second part on this. We discussed on why why the interest in the Roman Empire carries so much relevance for today in the United States and the state of our, excuse me, why interest in the Roman Republic carries so much interest with respect to the state of our own Republic. But why the Roman Empire is also um, very important is because this kind of highlights the, the slow death that takes place. And again, let, let's go back to the debasing of the currency slide, if we could, real quick. I'm sorry, we keep bouncing around here on um, on um, 
Hamilton. Um, this is the point that I, I, I want to make sure that people understand and, and really understand on why we're so fascinated about this topic is because it, if you have good fundamentals, if you have good fundamentals within your society, and again, I would argue that the fundamentals are economic, they're cultural, they're, they're military, they're, um, they're political, and they're generally rooted in a, a, something of a common identity. Like that, the common identity is actually critical because if it's if it's just economic, well, then you only survive during the good times. You're a trade confederation, right? If it's only military, well, then you're you're the Huns, right? As long as you're winning battles, you're in charge of everything. And the moment you're not, you're 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 done. Um, but when when you have a good combination of you know that military prowess, when you have a a common culture and past for which there is some shared appreciation and respect when you have economic policies that allow for people to be able to develop and move up the economic uh, ladder, regardless of, of where they start off life, where you have political institutions that people are relatively certain can provide some sort of justice, both within the legal realm, as well as in the representative round. When you have all of those things together and you have some sort of shared vision for where things are going to go, both as a nation, but, but largely too, as, as an individual, as a family, um, that gives you something to fight for. It also, it also prevents you for fighting against something. And this is really important. It's one thing to say, oh, well, you have something to fight for. Well, the Visigoths had something to fight for. It was the destruction of you know, Rome at one point, right? The Vandals had something to fight for. The question is, is as we as a society, what, what are we fighting for and, and what do we not want to have to fight, right? What we're fighting for, I would argue, is that idea. It's that, it's that shared cultural experience where we have a respect for our past, even though we understand it's not perfect. We have a respect for our present and culturally shaping institutions, which provide us some sense of, of uh, belonging and meaning. And we also have a shared sense of where we should be going in the future. Not to say that we're trying to dictate the lives of every single individual within the country, but rather an idea that as a nation, this is where we would like to be in the future. Yes, we would like greater prosperity. We would like greater security. I would hope we would like fewer wars and military interventions, things of that nature. Well, there's things that are necessary in order to achieve that. And I would argue that in, in many respects in the United States, while it's, it's not been perfect, we've achieved so many milestones, whether it was things like a stable economic development through property rights and free market economics, whether it was a, a political system that allowed for representation or a legal system that for, for the most part, and especially compared with history, right? Whenever you're comparing things to some sort of ideal that has never existed, you're always going to fall short. But if you can look at what you have and say, Compared to history or compared to even the present and, and other societies, we have it pretty good. And therefore, if we see problems with it, the solution would be to correct for them when possible, not try to completely up in the system. Because the more lines you cross where you're just upending everything or the more lines you cross where all of a sudden the, the culturally shaping institutions no longer believe in your past or present or even a shared future, the more your economics is determined by a political elite that can essentially manipulate your currency to the detriment of everybody except for a very, very small portion of society, the more you create a complete disconnect between the people within the civilization and what you might call the ruling party or the elite within a civilization. I hate calling them the elite because I don't think that's an accurate description. The more the people in power. And one of the things that we want to be able to prevent, obviously we're not dealing with military coups like, like the Roman empire was like the stages in the Roman empire was. But the important thing to remember is neither was Rome at one point in their history. 
Rome went through hundreds of years of peaceful transitions of, of, of power, relatively peaceful transitions, especially for the time. How was it able to achieve that? Well, it's, it's because there were certain things you just didn't do if you were a good Roman. And the thing that we have to start asking ourselves is, what does it mean to be a good American again? You know, what, what does it mean? I, like, I, I feel like I understand what it means to be a good Christian. Sometimes I wonder, what does it still mean to be a good American? Because what it, what it used to mean for me and what it still does for me, although I'm not sure it's, it's even a, a popular position anymore, what it used to mean was you have a right to go out and live your life the way you would like. Part of assuming that right is assuming the responsibilities that come with it. It is not somebody else's job to pay my bills or take care of me or my family. That's my job. I have the freedom to go out and make that happen using the skills that I have, using the work ethic that I have, using the labor that I have. And my, my responsibility is to take advantage of those rights in order to benefit myself, my family, my community, my country. That's my responsibility that comes with it. And I see more and more of that getting replaced with this idea that, no, 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 your job is to achieve some form of self-actualization and anything standing in the way of you being able to do that requires some sort of government action or government intervention. It requires some sort of strong man, whether it be an activist, whether it be a political leader, whether it be a Hollywood star, whatever it is, to come in and, and change the way society works in order to benefit you. Well, the big question is, is, okay, at the expense of what and at the expense of whom? Because the Roman emperors came to a conclusion that, well, no, no, the only way we could keep the populace under control is through bread and circuses. The only way that we could keep the army under control was with ever larger donatives. Well, how do we do that? We don't have enough money. Well, we're going to have to debase our currency. And then all of a sudden the death spiral starts and more and more people start to do things that were thought impossible by previous generations to the point where the lines are no longer there. And all of a sudden it becomes about survival. And I'll end with this. It, it was the problem before. A line is drawn in the stand and we say that this is sacred and you should not cross it. You should not do this. And then somebody does. And maybe they have good reasons for it. Maybe they have legitimate, legitimate concerns that they were trying to address and they didn't feel that this was going to work. So they cross it anyways. And then somebody else crosses it. And then somebody else crosses it. And before you were crossing lines in order to try to correct an injustice. Then you crossed the line because it was just for your benefit. Then you crossed the line because if you didn't, there would be consequences. And the thing that I am hoping that we can save within this country is the understanding that there are certain lines that are not supposed to be crossed. But I would tell some of my colleagues within politics, those lines rest with blurring the idea between individual responsibility or family responsibility or community responsibility and government responsibility. Because all of a sudden, when you start to imagine that the government is the primary mechanism with which we're going to use to solve our problems or to address challenges, it's no longer individual people working in voluntary cooperation or leaving each other alone when they don't agree. No, no, no. There must be a national vision and that national vision will be carried out and will be expressed through the political system. And so now, if you disagree with what's going on, well, tough. Get on board or you'll be punished. We'll deplatform you. We'll censor you. That's how it starts, but that's never how it ends. It always ends with, now we're going to take away your job. Now we're not going to allow you to bank anymore. Now we're going to take away your ability to engage in the economy. Eventually, they just throw you in jail. 
And they can always justify it because once again, this is part of this national vision. And after all, we came to this national vision democratically, right? So it must be okay. The thing that made America unique was not just the idea that you could vote for elected officials. That already happened. That already was an experience. That happened thousands of years before the United States was ever created. Our democracy is not the thing that makes the United States uniquely special within world history. What made it uniquely special was this philosophical principle that we are created equal, that we're endowed by our creator, not by politicians, not by rulers, not by our democracy, with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not the provision of happiness, the pursuit of it. And if we can once again enshrine that those principles are noble, even when they're not perfectly executed, even when the governments that have been established to attempt to protect them are not perfectly run or managed, there's still something worth saving there. But ultimately, the reason why we talk about culture just as much, if not more, than politics on the show is because we believe ultimately that's what killed Rome. You want to know why Rome fell? It no longer believed in what it meant to be a good Roman. And if we stop believing in what it means to be a good American, if we don't even have some sort of common view of what that actually means, then we're going to fall too. Because as special as the principles that I believe this country was founded on, as special as I believe the country is, we're not so special as to be able to defy reality endlessly and expect to be saved from the consequences of it. So the question is, is what do we actually mean when we say to be a good American? And we're going to make an argument for what that is. And we hope it's one that will resonate. I want to thank you very much for audience. I know we, we went two and a half hours again, just like with the first episode. I'm just going to tell everyone right now, you should just be happy we only went two and a half hours. True. <laughs> because Hamilton will tell you right now, this discussion isn't done between Christian and I. We're going to shut off the cameras, go down there, probably throw on like Invicta or Kings and Generals or Baz Battles and continue talking about the Roman Empire and the Roman Republic because we think it's such a relevant conversation what's going on right Maybe now. Maybe we'll bring it up at the gym. That's yeah. something that I wanted to tell the audience. Yes. I'm going to the gym now. Christian went uh, the other night when Nick couldn't go, and I was like, "Yeah, I know. Yeah. first time going it's to the awesome. gym by Christian, myself." That's why Christian's new. When you see Christian out there, um, you know, in the store or whatnot, I I like his new nickname as mostly benevolent warlord because that's what he's training to be—a mostly benevolent warlord. But um, no, thank you very much for sticking with us. And thank you for the questions, for the comments. I want to point something out as well. We really appreciate every super chat and every question that comes to us. We really do, and we try to get to all of them. The one thing I will tell you is that if you ask us a super chat question that is completely off topic. Sometimes I'll try to answer it through text in here. I, I do, we do feel an obligation to our audience to focus on the questions that are focused on the topic that we're currently discussing. So please don't think we're ignoring you. I will try to answer it. Sometimes we'll try to answer those at the end if we missed them. But we once again, thank you very much for all your participation. Please consider joining our community uh, chat as well over on Circle. The links for that are on the show notes page. And once again, I also want to um, you know, really thank Good Ranchers again for, for sticking with us as a, as a channel, for advertising with us, for creating a good product. It's, it's really nice to be able to partner with people that are not only like-minded, but actually produce something of, of real value that we can enjoy. So thank you very much. And we will see you next episode.